This is not the media. This is hell. Hi. Uh, hi. Hello. Yes, it's producer Alex. Uh, I'm sorry. Your radio host Chuck is a late scratch due to a dental emergency. I talked to him yesterday on the phone and he's okay. Uh, just not his mouth and face. But he should be back next week, so don't worry. Maybe a little bit more broke and gap-toothed. Who knows? But this week, we're digging deep into the American War on Drugs, which has lasted a century. Congratulations. On this week's four-hour show, Johan Hari looks back to a century of drug war failures and the successes of its architect. Lisa McGurr explains how alcohol prohibition set the blueprint for the drug war and mass incarceration. Susanna Rice explains how America's drug war is more about retaining control of drug supply than it is eradicating narcotics. Sam Quinones explains how doctors and dealers created America's opiate boom. Donna Murch traces the racial divide between the opioid crisis and the drug war. And in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin gets his brain pills delivered. Okay, let's start the show. Here's one of our faves, Johan Hari. We have had so many guests on our show, so many amazing authors, but we've never had an author of a book that was endorsed, that got a blurb from Elton John. Elton John says what you're about to hear about is an absolutely stunning book. It will blow your mind and blow you away. On the line with us right now, journalist Johan Hari is author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Good afternoon, Johan. Hey, Chuck. It's great to be back with you. What I'm even more pleased about is that it was endorsed by both Elton John and Noam Chomsky, and I want to try to get them to perform a duet in honor of the book. I've so far failed, <laughs> tragically. Uh, yes, I would like to hear that as well. If you can get <laughs> Naomi Klein to be in that trio, that would be fantastic. Yeah, some, yeah, uh, yeah. It's a slightly surreal mixture of people who've endorsed my book. It's, uh, you know, from, from them to the former head of the LAPD drug squad to the former chief scientific advisor of the, um, on drugs in Britain. So, yeah, it's a slightly surreal menagerie. It'd be a, it'd be a very odd bebop group. Yeah, the, uh, some of the past guests on our show who have endorsed uh, Johan's book are, as he was saying, Noam Chomsky said, it's wonderful, I couldn't put it down, Naomi Klein, Glenn Greenwald, uh, and even Norm Stamper, the former chief of the Seattle Police Department, he said Johan Hari has written a drug policy reform book like no other. Many have studied or conducted the science surrounding the manifold ills of drug prohibition, but Hari puts it all into riveting story form and humanizes it. It's a fascinating tale. You start by writing how you took pills for narcolepsy. You write, I am not narcoleptic. Many years before, I had read that if you take them, you can write in long, manic weeks without pause and without rest, and it worked. I was wired. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake one of my relatives from a drugged sleep, a slump and not being able to. And all this while your boyfriend was going through from smack to crack and a relative was having trouble with coke. How do you think your perspective on the war on drugs is affected by being someone who was using and someone who was surrounded by abuse? I think it's a difficult question. It's quite difficult to hear you reading that out, to be honest. Um, although, you know, I mean, it's totally legitimate to read it out. I think, I think I come at it with a perspective where there were questions I wanted to answer that I realized, I was slowly realizing that our culture hadn't really answered for me, or rather, I think, had given me answers that I was realizing were wrong. I wanted to ask some really pretty basic questions. Things like, what causes drug use? 
what causes drug addiction? You know, it's 100 years since we first criminalized drugs. Why did we do that? Why do we carry on doing that? And what are the alternatives? And what I wanted to do, you know, I think that this debate about drugs and the war on drugs, part of the problem with it is it happens in a very abstract way. We talk in this abstract way about, you know, users or dealers or, you know, all sorts of people. And I didn't want to think of it in that way. What I wanted to do was go and sit with and immerse myself in the stories of people whose lives had been changed by this decision to go to war against drugs for 100 years. So I, what I did is I kind of got a one-way ticket and went on a really long journey. I ended up going to eight different countries. I went all over the United States. And it took me to loads of, to lots of strange stories, you know, to the surviving friends of Billie Holiday who told me the story of how she was stalked and, and, and basically killed by the man who launched the war on drugs to a, a transsexual crack dealer in Brooklyn to, you know, the only person to ever be the heart of one of the most deadly Mexican drug cartels and make it out to tell the story to actually the only country to ever decriminalize all drugs. And what I was trying to do in all those places was to not go at it, to, to go about it the way I would want someone to tell the story of one of the people I love who became involved in, in drugs, which was to treat them as human, to listen, to honor the fact that that they're complex human beings with complex feelings and emotions and motivations and failings, for sure, and to, to really tell it as, as stories of people who, who, whose lives could be different. And when you talk about those complex feelings and those failings, possibly, uh, how much does the sense of punishment in our culture for anybody's drug issues, how much worse does that make those drug problems? How much does the puritanical shaming of drug users, if you will, how much does that exacerbate drug abuse? Well, I think that's a really important question. I went to one of the worst places I've ever been, Tent City in Arizona. It's the prison run by Joe Arpaio, where women are forced to go out, these broken, addicted women are forced to go out on chain gangs wearing T-shirts saying, I was a drug addict, this is what you get for using drugs. They're forced to dig graves and, you know, spending time with these women and getting to know them <clears throat> was, you know, it, it, it was, uh, I was actually incredibly moved by the dignity and courage of those women, actually. And I think to answer your question, one of the things we had to do, something that really blew my mind when I was doing the research for the book, is something that really changed my mind, is this question of, to answer what you're saying, we have to think about what really causes addiction, right? And if you had said to me four years ago, when, <clears throat> when I was starting work on this book, what causes addiction, I would have looked at you like that was kind of a stupid question. I would have said, well, obviously drugs cause drug addiction. And we all have a, we've been told a story for 100 years about addiction that's pretty simple and has become like almost like common sense to us, which is you think, okay, if you and me and the next 20 people who walk past your studio all for 20 days used heroin, on day 21, we'd all be heroin addicts because there's chemical hooks in heroin that our body would then physically need. That's what we think heroin addiction is, right? Sounds completely common sense. I believed it all my life. Someone pointed out something to me, a scientist pointed out to me something that kind of threw me and led me to go and look and talk to a lot of other people about this and get a much more complicated story. That if you step out of your studio now and God forbid you get hit by a car and you break your hip, you're going to be taken to hospital and you will be given diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's just heroin. It's the medical name for heroin. It's actually much better heroin than the heroin you would go and score on the street because it's medically pure, whereas the stuff the dealers will sell you is only about 5% pure and the rest is just, you know, crap they put in it. 
Now, you'll be given that for quite a long time. That's happening in every hospital in the United States. It's happening all over the world, right? People are being given heroin for pain relief for a long time, right? Now, if what we believe about addiction is right, what should happen? Those people should leave hospital addicts. They should want to score on the streets. Now, there's loads of clinical studies of this. And what they found is that just doesn't happen. No one gets this. And I thought, that's really weird. So you can have two people using the same drug. One is a street user outside the hospital using in the alleyway, and one is in a clinical ward using, and the drug has a completely different effect. One of them becomes an addict, the other doesn't. How can that be? And that led me to look at lots of different aspects of addiction. And to me, the best way to explain it is this mind-blowing experiment that was done. In the, in the 1950s, there was a series of experiments done into addiction. They're really simple. Your listeners could do them at home, although it'd be a bit cruel. You get a rat, you put it in a cage, and it's got two water bottles, right? One is just water, and one is water laced with either heroin or cocaine, which rats react to the same way as we do. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and pretty quickly kill itself, right? You may remember there was a Partnership for a Drug-Free America ad in the 80s that showed this experiment and said, you know, like, cocaine did it to the rat, it will do it to you. Um, and it seems completely common sense. Until in the 1970s, a professor in Vancouver called Bruce Alexander came along and said, hang on a minute, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use the drugs. Let's try this differently. So Bruce Alexander built Rat Park, which is heaven for rats, right? It's this lovely big cage where they've got loads of cheese and loads of friends and loads of colored balls and everything your, you know, your average rat could ever want in life. And in Rat Park, just like in the other experiments, they've got both the water bottles. They've got plain water and they've got the drugged water. But what's fascinating is, whereas they almost all killed themselves with the drugs in the first, when they were alone, in Rat Park, turns out, the rats just don't like the drugs. When they've got other stuff to do, when they've got friends and they can have sex and they can have food and they can be happy, they didn't use very much of the drugs. Some of them did, but not very much. None of them ever became used in a compulsive way and none of them ever overdosed in Rat Park. Now, what Bruce says is, that tells us that what we've believed about addiction up till now, both the liberal and the conservative theories of addiction are not right. So the conservative theory is, you know, people party too hard, it's a moral failing, that's how they get hooked. Well, that, that's not right. But it also shows us that liberal theory, which I'm much more sympathetic to and was, which is that it's a disease, it hijacks your brain, that's not really right either. What he says is addiction isn't a disease, addiction isn't a moral failing, addiction is an adaptation to your environment. It's not your brain, it's not your morality, it's your cage. I found that fascinating when I was reading your book about how the connection is what is necessary for somebody who is having difficulties with drugs, not the intervention culture, not the intervention process uh, that so many people know from TV, but what is needed is that connection, that person who it may be going into a relapse, they may need help from somebody, from another person, not to sit there and scold them, not to punish them, just to give them a connection with another human being. It made me think about how isolation can lead to drug abuse, how that kind of isolation that we might feel here in the U.S. today with the growing ideas of, not growing ideas, but the, uh, you know, individualism on steroids and this kind of idea of an anti-community point of view. Do you think that, uh, th do you think individualism, do you think that and the kind of self-made myth that we have here in the United States, do you think that exacerbates the drug problems that we have here in the U.S.? Yeah, totally. And Bruce Alexander talks really well about this in the book, uh, Chasing the Scream, as well about the 
He talks about we focus so much when it comes to addiction on individual recovery, and obviously there's a huge amount of value in that. But he says we need to think much more about social recovery. Why are we seeing rising addiction? Why are we seeing so many more people who feel so miserable that they want to be constantly out of it, whether it's out of it on Oxycontin or out of it on heroin or out of it on gambling, constantly gambling or whatever, or constantly looking at their smartphone? Now, that's a less harmful addiction, but for a lot of people, it is an addiction. I think you're totally right. There's nothing in human evolution that prepares us to be alone. On the savannas of Africa, where human beings evolved, if you were alone, you were in terrible danger. You were about to die. You know, you were, you were, you were very vulnerable to being attacked. Um, th- there's nothing in our evolution that prepares us to be alone. You know, and, and one of the things I think, I'm really glad you picked up on this, Chuck. I mean, most of the book, I should stress, is stories about people and individuals, and these lessons kind of emerge from those stories. But, you know, one of the things I learned, and it really helped me when I returned to, you know, be with the people I knew who were addicted, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Why do most of the people listening to your show not, they could be, let's not even think about the illegality, they could be drinking vodka all day, right? It's legal. They could right. just sit and drink vodka all day. Why are the vast majority of them not doing it? Although they could. Well, because they've got people they love who they want to be present with. They've got things to do that they think are meaningful. Um, and again, I, don't want, I want to get away from talking about this in a way that might seem abstract. There's a country that tried this, right? That tried to say, let's take these lessons from addiction and apply them. It's Portugal. Fifteen years ago, Portugal had the wor- one of the worst drug problems in Europe. One percent of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And they had been trying for years the American way. So every year... They cracked down harder, and every year the drug problem got worse. And this extraordinary man called Dr. Juan Goulao, who uh, I write about in the book, who was uh, set up the first rehab center in, in Portugal, was asked to do something by the politicians. Uh, he was asked to set up a commission. What happened is the political parties agreed in advance. They got together and agreed, whatever this panel recommends, we will do. So it just took it out of politics. And they said, doctors, scientists, you go away and figure out what we can do that will actually solve this problem, because we can't carry on with 1% of our population being addicted to heroin and it growing. And what happened is they went away and they came back and they said something really bold. They said, let's decriminalize everything from cannabis to crack and crucially a second stage. It's not just you stop punishing people and that's that. Let's take all the money we used to spend on arresting drug users, imprisoning drug users, you know, all of that. Let's take all of that and spend it on several things. The most important of which is reconnecting addicts with society. Now, partly that's things like rehab and compassionate care, but actually the most important component is getting them jobs and lives. So subsidized jobs for addicts. You know, if you employ an addict, this guy, he's a mechanic, he's had a drug problem. If you employ him, we'll pay half the wages, that kind of thing. Subsidized housing. And, you know, it's been, and it was amazing to go there and see how this works and to sit with the people and see how it's changed people's lives. And the results are in, right? It's been 15 years. And there's several things that have emerged from this. One thing we have to be completely honest about, drug use did go slightly up. It went up by about 6%. So we're not talking a massive rise. It may be some people are being more honest when they answer, ask the question. But it's, you know, that's an increase. Addiction has fallen dramatically. Injecting drug use has halved, it's halved, fallen by 50%. That's an extraordinary and one of the ways you know it's been so successful is that no one in Portugal wants to go back, virtually no one. I interviewed one of the most moving interviews I did, and I met a lot of moving people. 
was a guy called Juan Figuera, who was he's the head of the Portuguese equivalent to the DEA. Uh, and he led the opposition to the decriminalization. And he said the kind of things that a lot of your listeners will completely understandably be thinking, which is, my God, if we decriminalized everything, wouldn't loads of people use drugs? Wouldn't you have... Wouldn't we collapse into anarchy? Wouldn't, or, you know, you can, you can picture a lot of the concerns that people would have. And what Huao said, I've got the exact quotes in the book, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, everything I said would happen didn't happen. Everything they said would happen did happen. Not only, you know, not only do I hope the whole world follows this, but I actually regret that I spent 20 years arresting drug users because it was a waste of money and it was cruel and we could have actually been helping them to turn their lives around. And that to me was so powerful because... You know, I'd gone on this long journey through seeing the horror of the drug war, you know, Ciudad Juarez, seeing the, the carnage there, going to, you know, in, in Brooklyn, spending time with a former crack dealer, seeing how that destroys people's lives, uh, seeing the horrors of the prison system in Arizona. And then at the end to kind of be like, oh, none of this had to happen. Actually, there is a solution. There's a better way. Now, Portugal isn't the total solution because they've decriminalized use for users but they've not provided a legal route to get the drugs. So they're still controlled by armed criminal gangs and that like they are in the United States and Britain. And that's very problematic. And I can talk about solutions to that, but wow, to see there's no country in the world that has moved beyond the drug war and regretted it. And, you know, let's be honest, we tried it for a hundred years, right? No one can say we didn't give it a fair try. <laughs> it's time to look at the alternatives. This is the part that I don't get. Okay, so we have this evidence. We have this case study right now that we could go and look at. We can look at Portugal and see how they ended their drug war and the benefits that they have. Now, I understand that people might have the argument like they do with uh, universal health care, that, for instance, the universal health care situation or program that they have in Canada or the program that they have in Norway would be great in the United States, but because the economy is so much bigger, maybe you cannot just take it piecemeal and move it into another uh, gigantic economy. Maybe because it works in one country doesn't mean it will work in the other country. But we do have evidence of, as you were just saying, that it does work in Portugal, that ending the drug war works. We also have evidence from our own alcohol prohibition that prohibition does not work. So we know that prohibition doesn't work. We know that the end of the drug war does work. Why did we believe that drug prohibition would work when we saw the failures and saw how uh, alcohol prohibition propped up organized crime so much here in the United States? Why couldn't we learn from the lesson of alcohol prohibition and apply it to drug prohibition? I think the reason is because you're assuming, totally understandably, that the reason the drug war was introduced, as I would have assumed, was to deal with the drug problem. Actually, the thing that most struck me in my research about this, you know, I went to the archives of the, the guy who launched the war on drugs, a man called Harry Anslinger, who I think is the most influential person no one's ever heard of, is that actually the things that we imagine they were concerned about, they weren't bothered about at all. You know, we imagine, if you think about why did the drug war start, you think, well, it would have been because the reasons we would give, you know, you don't want kids to be used drugs, you don't want people to become addicted. That wasn't, that wasn't why they launched it. Those things barely come up in the public conversation. The reason they launched it was very different, and I tell it in Chasing the Screen by talking about uh, a story I found really moving. In 1939, uh, Billie Holiday stands on stage in New York City and she sings the song Strange Fruit, which I'm guessing most of your listeners will know. It's a song about lynching, a song against lynching, about the horror of lynching. And 
it was really shocking at that time to have an African-American woman standing in front of a mainly white audience and singing a lament against lynching. There's no songs like that from the time. That night, uh, her biographer, Julia, uh, Julia Blackburn, explains, Billie Holiday was told by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, stop singing that song. And she refused. And that's when they started stalking her. They, um, the story of what happened, uh, you know, the, the Anslinger, the first person he sent, he hated employing, white pe- uh, employing black people, but obviously you couldn't send a, a white guy into Harlem to stalk Billie Holiday very well. So they employed this guy called Jimmy Fletcher, who was an undercover agent, and he follows her for two years and he stalks her. And what happened is, you know, he fell in love with her because she was so amazing. And when he's ordered to bust her, he does it. But he feels guilty for the rest of his life for what he did. She sent, she's put on trial. She said during the trial, it was called the United States versus Billie Holiday, and that's how it felt. And uh, she's, she's put on trial. She, um, she's sent to prison. She doesn't sing a note when she's in prison. And when she gets out, she's not allowed to perform anymore because you have to have a license to perform anywhere where alcohol is sold. Her life is ruined. Anslinger then sends another agent after her, this, 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 this psychopath called George White, who we now know drugged and raped women and was you know, a monster. And they stalk her and stalk her. In the end, she collapses with liver cancer. She's taken to hospital. Um, and in the hospital, they, they, they cut off. She obviously goes into withdrawal because she can't get any heroin in the hospital. Um, they arrest her on a hospital bed. I interviewed the last surviving person who'd been in that room. Um, you know, they, they handcuff her to the hospital bed. They, um, they don't let her friends in. They take away her record player. One of her friends manages to get her put on methadone and she starts to recover a little bit. Then the methadone's cut off and she dies. One of her friends told the BBC, you know, she looked like she had been wrenched violently from life. And the reason why I tell that story, well, I think it's an important story in itself, but the main reason why I tell that story is because the war on drugs right from the start was about a race hysteria. It was the, the main reason that was given for uh, banning drugs was African-Americans and Chinese people are forgetting their place and attacking white people, and we need to stop them. It's really striking when you look at the files and when you look at the evidence. The, the, they, the race was the primary driving factor. And to then follow that through to today, where I went to you know, all sorts of places in the United States, where it's really striking, I think the figure is 40% of all African-American men between the ages of 18 and 30 in Washington, D.C., are in prison, probation, or on parole at any given time. You know, now we know from the we know from lots of studies, African American men are no more likely than anyone else to be drug dealers, but they're the overwhelming majority of the people who go to prison for it. So when you say there's a rational solution that lies in Portugal to the drug problem, you're totally right. But what you have to then ask is, is the drug policy in the United States was it designed to solve the drug problem? Well, not really. That's not what drove it from the start. And that's that's part of what we have to unpick now. And I say this with no sense of superiority as a British citizen, because uh, uh, actually Britain is one of the only countries that has even worse racial disparities than the United States. And the United States has worse racial disparities than apartheid South Africa when it comes to drug arrests, which is kind of incredible. So in your travels, in your investigation, 
considering the fact that the United States exported the drug war, Harry Anslinger is the godfather of the drug war. How unique is the United States when you visited here in reporting on the drug war? How unique is the way in which the drug war is fought or the outcome of the drug war here in the United States compared to the other places that you have gone? Because considering that we exported the whole thing, you might think it might be a little bit more intense here than in other places. Yeah, it's very extreme. I mean, there are other countries that are as extreme, like Russia and China, but it's at the. I mean, it's not flattering to be put in the company of Russia and China on these things. Um, it's very extreme. There's nothing in in Europe like like it. And actually, some of the most interesting people in explaining this to me were, and I found it very moving. Cops who had really believed in the drug war. You know, there's a woman whose story I tell in the book, Lee Maddox, amazing person. She was a really passionate believer in the drug war. She signed up because one her best friend was murdered by what she believed was a drug gang. And Lee signed up to destroy the drug gangs. And for decades, she goes after people, she busts them, she destroys these gangs. And then one day, Lee kind of noticed something, which is if you arrest a rapist, the next day there's fewer rapes in your city. If you arrest a drug dealer, well, A, there's another drug dealer on the corner the next day for sure. But B, the murder rate actually goes up. And she was thinking, well, why would that be? And it's actually really simple. If you control the court, if you're like Chino, the dealer that I, uh, former dealer that I write about in the book, if Chino controls her patch, she's established it, she's fought for it. If you come along and arrest her, you just trigger a turf war to control her patch. You trigger a, you know, and people fight and kill and people get, as you know very well in Chicago, people get caught in the crossfire. So the harder you fight the drug war, the worse the violence between those gangs gets. There's, there's a writer called Charles Bowden who said, you know, the war on drugs creates the war for drugs. Now, that doesn't happen when you provide a legal route to get it. I mean, the drink aisle at Walmart is not going and blowing up, you know, the, the, the drink aisle in another supermarket <laughs> because it's legal. If, you, if, you, if, if, you have, if it's legal, you have recourse to the law. If, if you sell alcohol legally and I come and try to steal it, right, you can ring the police and they'll arrest me and take me away. If you sell marijuana or cocaine and I come and try to steal it, you, obviously, outside Colorado and Washington, you can't ring the police. So you have to fight me. And actually, mostly what dealing is, is you, you want to establish a reputation for being so terrifying that no one's going to even try to do that. That's where a huge driver of this violence comes from. And when Lee realized all of this, you know, she quit the police force, she retrained as a lawyer, and now she spends a lot of her time getting convictions quashed for the kind of people that she arrested. You know, and I think it's fascinating to see former cops talk about their, their experiences because they've seen it really up close and they can see that it just doesn't work. And not only can you find out that by going to Johan's uh, website for his book, ChasingTheScream.com. We're speaking with the journalist Johan Hari. He is author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the Drug War, or the War on Drugs. Um, but you can also go to Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, an organization from Baltimore that we featured on our show, Leap. You can look them up online, and uh, they have some great videos about the way in which they feel about uh, drug prohibition here in the United States and how it has been embraced or 
executed, whatever word you might want to use. You write, many white Americans did not want to accept that black Americans might be rebelling because they had lives like Billie Holiday's locked into pig towns and banned from developing their talents. It was more comforting to believe that a white powder was the cause of black anger and that getting rid of the white powder would render black Americans docile and happy to kneel once more. And you add, at times, as I read through Harry Anslinger's, he's the godfather of the drug war, Harry Anslinger's ever stranger arguments, I wondered, how could a man like this have persuaded so many people? But the answers were lying there, waiting for me in the piles of letters he received from members of the public, from senators, and from presidents. They wanted to be persuaded. They wanted easy answers to complex fears. It's tempting to feel superior, to condescend to these people, but if we are honest, this impulse, too, is there in all of us. These members of the public wanted to be told that these deep, complex problems, race, inequality, geopolitics, came down to a few powders and pills, and if these powders and pills could be wiped from the world, these problems would disappear. So is the drug war about us not being willing to face our real problems, our real challenges, and trying to find an outside reason why our system isn't perfect? Are we simply seeking an excuse for the failures of capitalism? There are real problems caused by drugs themselves, and no one should diminish that. And I know from my own family that that's absolutely not to be diminished. But I think what the drug war is about is not about saying, well, what do we do pragmatically about these problems to reduce them? Because if we did that, as you said before, we would look at countries like Portugal and Switzerland, where I went, and Uruguay, where they've ended the drug war. The, the, you're absolutely right, though, that it's all, we all do this in our lives. If there's something you fear about yourself, it's much more tempting to project it out onto the world and say, oh, that person's like it, or this thing is like it, and attack that in the belief that it will solve your fear and your, and your problems. You know, it's very interesting to look at, I mean, there's, there's also more kind of base things. If you look at, for example, another big thing that Harry Anslinger did that will affect the lives of a huge number of your listeners, is you know, Harry Anslinger takes over the Department of Prohibition just as our cold prohibition is ending. So he's suddenly got this big government department that's been defeated, basically. They had a war on alcohol and they lost, and it's got nothing to do. Now, he had previously said marijuana is not a danger, there's nothing wrong with it. Suddenly, he announces that marijuana is worse than heroin, it's this evil drug, it's worse than Frankenstein's monster, you smoke it once and it will make you kill your family. He's the massive promoter, you know, people might have seen the movie Reefer Madness, that's, that's his propaganda. And he latches onto this case, there's a guy called Victor Licata in Florida, a young boy, he was in, well, not that young, I think he was in his early 20s, who killed his family. And Anslinger Lachlan said, this is proof of what marijuana does to people. Look at this boy. Years later, someone went back and looked at the guy's psychiatric records. They don't even mention marijuana. In fact, the guy had been terribly mentally unwell. Several years before, his family had been told, you need to put this guy into a sanatorium. They, and he, they'd refused. They had a lot of mental illness in their family. But this case was used as the kind of iconic case to build the laws around, the laws that we still have today. Um, so it's about what Harry Anslinger was a genius at was at tapping into people's fears. You know, so that was a time when, you know, young people were behaving a bit differently to tap into people's fears and say, you're frightened of this social trend. Let's get rid of this subject. You're frightened of African-Americans because, uh, you know, reconstruction had been a failure and African-Americans were totally rightly angry at the way they were being treated. You're frightened of how African-Americans are behaving. Let's go to war against cocaine and then they'll be back in their place. You know, you're frightened of how young people are behaving. That's marijuana for you. And Harry Anslinger was, you know, a fascinating guy. You know, he's, he's in charge of the 
the, the, what becomes the Federal Bureau of Narcotics from 1930 to 1962. It's even longer than Hoover. And um, he's a very complex and dark figure, and we live with his legacy today to a very large degree. We live with the drug policies that Harry Anslinger built, not just in the United States. You know, He uses the diplomatic power of the, the U.S. to impose this on the whole world. I have to admit that I have this one liberal inkling that kept uh, coming up when I was reading your book, and that is this idea that a lot of people have that if you're poor, you can't afford to go to the Bahamas. But if you're poor, you can't afford a dime bag of heroin. So your vacation, uh, instead of going to the Bahamas, might be the short vacation you get with heroin. And so I, I make this connection to, oh, well, one of the major problems with drug abuse or the major problems that we have in this country with the drug war is caused simply by poverty. And I know that that's a problem in my thinking because that assumes that only poor people are the problem with the drug war. What is wrong with my thinking when I attribute, pov- attribute uh, the drug war to poverty? Well, essentially, if you think back to what we were saying a little bit earlier, it's more like disconnection. So there's a, there's a good analogy, I think, that's worth thinking about. During the Vietnam War, about 20% of American soldiers, the best um, studies show, were using heroin, right? And at the time, there was a real panic in the United States because if you look at the news stories, they were like, my God, when the war ends, we're going to have all these junkies on the streets of the United States. This is a disaster. And actually, what happened is they came home and they just stopped using because if you're taken out of a pestilential, hellish jungle where you don't want to be and you could be killed at any moment and you go back to your nice life in Wichita, Kansas, you don't, you don't you're with a job and a, your family, you just don't want to be using heroin all the time. And if you think about that projected onto uh, people who are really suffering in the U.S., you know, if, if your life is awful, you're going to not want to be present in that. You know, I've seen that in my own family. If, you, if your life is good, you're going to want to be present in it. So you're absolutely right that, in a sense, drug policy is only a small part of how you deal with the problem of drug addiction because it goes so much deeper than the drug. The drug is a relatively minor aspect of it. It's, if, if your life is awful, you're going to find a way to not be present psychologically and mentally in that life. And this is one of the strong arguments for the kind of social justice that I know you and I really strongly believe in, is we've, we've created a world where a really large number of our fellow citizens and human beings don't want to be present in their lives because it's really miserable and it's hard. And one of the things that really gave me hope again is, you know, and I think I've written a re- actually a pretty hopeful book, you know, I was worried before I went to the countries where they'd stop the drug war because I thought, oh, God, if it's a failure there, this is going to be the most depressing book ever written. But actually, it's amazing when you go to places. If you look at Switzerland, for example, another place I went where they've effectively legalized heroin for addicts, um, which I can talk about if you like. But, you know, it's partly, one, it's partly that Switzerland is itself a very equal country and a country where, you know, they don't believe in abandoning anyone. I interviewed the amazing former president of Switzerland, Ruth Dreyfus, who led the legalization. And she's a former president, and she now lives opposite one of the heroin prescribing clinics that she set up. And I said to her, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine George Bush or David Cameron, when they leave office, living opposite a heroin clinic. And she said, um, again, the exact quotes in the book, but she said, well, when you're the president, you're the president for all your citizens, not, not just the ones who are doing well in life. And um, I think that's, that's really important as well.
There are so many crazy stories in this book about Harry Anslinger, and I want to touch on probably the craziest in just a bit, but you write, there was another racial group that also had to be kept down, Harry believed. In the mid-19th century, Chinese immigrants had begun to flow into the U.S., and you were touching on this a little bit earlier, and they were now competing with white people for jobs and opportunities. Worse still, Harry believed that they were competing for white women. He warned that with their own special oriental ruthlessness, the Chinese had to developed a liking for the charms of Caucasian girls from good families. They lured these white girls into their opium dens, a tradition they had brought from the home country, got the girls hooked, and then forced them into acts of unspeakable sexual depravity for the rest of their lives. Anslinger described their brothels in great detail, how the white girls removed their clothes slowly, the panties they revealed, how slowly they kissed the Chinese, and, and what came next, and blah, blah, blah. I'm starting to think from your book that Harry Anslinger, the father of the drug war, was some sort of racist pervert. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, it's partly he was regarded as racist at the time, which tells you something. Oh, like, man. He used the N-word wow. in official memos, and the, his own senator said he should have to resign because it was, that was so out of line. It was part of a, a racist hysteria about the Chinese that's kind of forgotten now. I read through some of the stuff. I mean... If it wasn't so heinous, it would be really funny. There was a judge who, uh, called Emily Murphy who wrote a book called The Black Candle, where she said, uh, it is a fact that Chinese drug addicts have no more blood in their veins than a shrimp. <laughs> really bizarre uh, claims. The, you're totally right. I mean, we forget now that there was this huge racist history about the Chinese, but Anslinger was, you know, it's really kind of, he was obsessed with those uh, true detective stories that used to come out in the 30s. So he wrote, very much in that style, and he thought very much in that style. There's these letters in his archive where scientists write to him and say, you know, Mr. Anslinger, maybe we should commission a scientific study into this, and he just, he just regards that as ridiculous. We're going to do that. You know, and then tells some lurid story about an evil, you know, slanty-eyed Chinese person, as he would see it, you know, wooing a white woman. So you're, you're right, and he, it's actually really interesting that Anslinger literally did go mad. I mean, he, he had this complete mental breakdown. He, he, while he was in the job... He became incredibly paranoid. And there are two kind of great ironies about Anslinger that I kind of save up for the end. I'm loath to give them away. But he did, he, he himself became a drug user and a drug addict, which kind of floored me when I found a drug user and a drug dealer. He, he um, when he's older and he's sick, he uses um, heroin to treat his heart condition. Uh, legally, I should point out, he didn't buy it illegally. But also, even more shockingly, when he found out that Senator McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, was using, uh, was using uh, drugs, opiates, um, he loved McCarthy, obviously. He, he doesn't have him arrested. He goes to McCarthy and says, you know, you've got to stop this, Senator. And McCarthy says, no, I'm not going to do it. So Anslinger says, okay, I'll arrange for you to get a legal prescription. You go to this pharmacy in D.C. and you, um, you, know, you, you go and collect it every week. So when it was someone he cared about, he was in favor of legalization. He gets, gives him a legal supply of heroin. You know, so, and I think that's true right down the line. There's very few prohibitionists who, if their own child became addicted, would want them sent to Tent City. In fact, I've yet to come across one. Virtually everyone powerful, if their child becomes addicted, um, gets them lovely, compassionate care. Now, what I want for everyone is what everyone wants for their own child. You know? I think it's also worth thinking, we've talked a lot about addiction. Another thing that surprised me when I was doing the research, uh, and because it's, it's so contrary to my own family's experience, but also it just seems intuitively wrong in our culture. 
90% of all use of illegal drugs is non-problematic, right? Which means you don't get addicted, it doesn't harm you. That doesn't come from a kind of liberal legalization outfit. That's the United Nations Office of Drug Control, which is the main drug war body. That's their figure, right? And it's with first I had that figure, I thought, oh, that, can't, that can't be right. It can't be that even most people who use crack are not harmed by it. That, that's, that must be wrong. But then, you know, you think about, think about most of the people you know who drink vodka, right? Think about most of you know who drink alcohol. Alcohol is a very powerful drug. There will be some alcoholics, and their lives are, are tragic, and they deserve our compassion and love and support. But the vast majority are not like that. Part, part of the problem with the drug war is that all the normal drug use is driven underground, where people can't talk about it and we can't see it. So all we see are the worst manifestations. It would be as if we never saw anyone having a casual beer. We only ever saw the homeless die in the gutter drinking, you know, methylated spirits. And that is part of the problem that we've, the drug war creates a massively distorted picture that then sustains the drug war on and on and on. You know, I just want to point out a couple of things about Johan's book real quick. As he was just saying, he didn't want to give away that great ending, but it, he and he did. But it's worth still reading. you got to read this book because what happens to Harry Anslinger and uh, not only what happens to him at the end, but what happens throughout his career is amazing. The story at the beginning of how they targeted Billie Holiday, it'll just, it'll just break your heart. It's really amazing. But you write, the world we recognize now where addicts are often forced to become criminals is a desperate Desperate scramble to feed their habit in a de- in a desperate scramble to feed their habit from gangsters was being summoned into existence for the first time when the drug war started. First, it created an army of gangsters to uh, smuggle drugs into the country and sell them to addicts. In other words, while Harry Anslinger claimed to be fighting the mafia, he was in fact transferring a massive and highly profitable industry into their exclusive control. Second, by driving up the cost of drugs by more than one thousand percent, the new policies meant addicts were forced to commit crime to get their next fix. If we ended the drug war, how much crime would disappear? Well, Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist, calculated that there are, in the 80s, that there were 10,000 additional murders every year as a result of the drug war. Because what you get is people fighting. There's a very good study that I cite in the book, and I really saw this dynamic on the ground. A guy called Professor Goldstein, Paul Goldstein, did a study of all the murders in New York City in one particular year, I think it was 1986, that were described as drug-related murders, right? And it turned out, like, the exact numbers are in the book, I could be slightly off, but I think it was 2.5% were where someone had used a drug, gone crazy and done something wrong. Uh, about 7.5% were addicts stealing something. And almost all the rest, so the overwhelming majority, were drug gangs fighting each other for control of the patch. Well, that's not drug-related. That's drug prohibition-related. In the same way that Al Capone killing another gangster wasn't alcohol-related. It was alcohol prohibition-related. Those killings don't happen anymore. So I think one thing we can say with a great degree of confidence, if you look at um, a guy called Professor Jeffrey Myron at uh, Harvard, did a very good analysis of this, the dramatic fall in the murder rate in the United States when alcohol prohibition ends. And it only really picks up again in the 1970s when there's a really big intensification of drug prohibition. You know, prohibition is one of the major drivers of murder. And uh, these people shouldn't be dying. I tell the story in the book of a little girl called Tiffany Smith in Baltimore who was just, you know, playing on her doorstep, gets shot in crossfire, completely innocent person. Huge amount of the, um, uh, the, the, the murders in the United States are deaths like that, especially where you are in Chicago. 
And one last question for you, Johan. We've been speaking with journalist Johan Hari. He is author of the new book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. You can find out more by going to chasingthescream.com, and you can follow Johan on Twitter at johanhari101. That's J-O-H-A-N-N. Hari, H-A-R-I, the number 101. Johan was named National Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International twice. He was named Environmental Commentator of the Year at the Editorial Intelligence Awards and Gay Journalist of the Year at the Stonewall Awards. He has also won the Martha Gellhorn Prize for Political Writing, as past guest Patrick uh, Coburn has as well. Uh, One last question for you, Johan. And as always with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate the response. I know you felt uncomfortable at the beginning of our conversation because I was talking about you and your use of narcolepsy drugs when you don't have narcolepsy. I know that made you feel uncomfortable. And if you want me to answer the same question, I'd be glad to. But what was the worst decision that you ever made when using drugs? I think that's difficult. I think... They're hard hard to remember, first of all, Johan. I just want to point out... Yeah, I mean, I think it's, again, I think it's related to that underlying disconnection. You know, uh, uh, yeah, I think that's really hard. I think the decision to carry on using them, even though, so basically they're used as smart drugs. It's a drug called ProVigil. And what it does is it massively improves your power of concentration. It was discovered, you know, when they did narcolepsy trials, that it, you know, it keeps narcoleptics awake, but it massively improves your ability to concentrate and, and, you know, focus. In case anyone's listening to this and clicking online to go and order it, it means you don't sleep. If you, know, if you take a narcolepsy drug and you don't, you're not narcoleptic, you, you don't sleep. And obviously, if you don't sleep, it has a very deleterious effect on your, on your mind in all sorts of ways. So I would say just the decision to carry on when it was clear that it was harmful, I would say that was probably, the, that in itself was probably the worst decision. Because if you affect your, you know, if you, if you throw off your ability to think properly, that kind of, it's like, it's like screwing up your computer software, isn't it? You know, it, it, or operating system. It's, then all your decisions become a little bit contaminated, don't they? they so I would, say, I would say that, yeah, I would say it was probably that was the, the worst decision. What, was, what would you say, Chuck, in response to <laughs> what was the worst decision you ever made on drugs? Oh, uh, that would be running under a moving train. Oh, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a really bad decision. <laughs> it was what, a... were you, what were you on? Uh, well, would you like me to give you the list or should, you, <laughs> should I send it to you later on? <laughs> it, was wow, a, okay. it was a lethal combination, let me tell you that. I was just glad the train was moving so slow I was able to jump out the other side without my legs being chopped off. So. Yeah, I'm glad. And by the way, my uh, my brother is using ProVigil right now because he has multiple sclerosis. Oh, and because right, yeah. they give you so many drugs to make sure that, you know, your muscles aren't stiff. I mean, he's on uh, all sorts of pain relievers all day that just knock him out. They give him ProVigil to keep him awake. So there you go, right, I guess. Right. Hmm. Johan, it's great hearing your voice again. When this book comes out in paperback, we got to have you back on the show. It really I would is. Love that, Chuck. It's really great hearing your voice again. Take care and Thank enjoy uh, 2015, sir. Thank you so much. You too. Thanks. Chuck spoke with Johan Hari in January of 2015. Hi, producer Alex here. You were listening to a best of dental emergency edition of This Is Hell Exploring the Drug War. Next up, Lisa McGurr. 
Prohibition, the war on alcohol, was a complete failure of a policy. Yet for some reason, we never learned the lesson we could have learned from that failure. Here to tell us what Prohibition should have taught us that can be applied to today's war on drugs, historian Lisa McGurr is author of The War on Alcohol, Prohibition, and the Rise of the United States. Welcome to This Is Hell, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. Lisa is a professor at Harvard University where she specializes in the history of the 20th century United States. Uh, Prior to her new book, The War on Alcohol, Lisa wrote Suburban Warriors, The Origins of the New American Right, which won the 2001 New England Historical Association Book Award and the Robert G. Athern uh, Prize in Western American History. And I'm very upset with myself in 2001 for not sending you a radio interview quest to talk about that book. So maybe we'll do that. I know that you have an updated version of it, so maybe we'll do that in the future. You write that alcohol prohibition in the U.S. was the boldest effort to remake private behavior in the nation's history. Is this more about raising morality or was this about controlling a uh, a certain section of the population? Mm -hmm. Is, Is morality the guise through which the other aspect of it advanced, that control advanced, or was morality really the driving force? Yeah, Um, it's a great question, and I don't think you can really separate the two, um, because these kind of moral panics and moral issues have served to drive state building in the United States, and this is one moment where you really see that in action. Um, So I would say that it was a campaign that had moral components to it. That is the way the anti-liquor crusaders understood it. But, of course, at the same time, that moral ethos was focused on controlling the drink, what was seen as the excessive drink of others, in particular immigrant, working-class, poor, what they thought of as vulnerable populations. So it was it was kind of both. It was it was it was definitely led by Protestant church going men and women, uh, in particular the church, uh, the anti saloon league, which considered itself the church in action against the saloon. And you know that they considered themselves moral crusaders, but they were focused on controlling the drink traffic, particularly in the saloons, not so much as it had been in the nineteenth century movement over individual control, a kind of self-disciplining project. And that shift leads, of course, to highly, much more coercive mechanisms and to what you can think of as social control projects. So I think the two and two, in other words, go hand in hand. So to what degree does the current narcotics prohibition, I don't want to jump too far ahead of ourselves, but mm-hmm. I just want to make this comparison, even let's just say only a marijuana prohibition, or to the extent that there is still a marijuana prohibition, uh, how much is that about remaking private behavior in the U.S. today? And is it less so about, uh, less so or more so about remaking private behavior than the war on alcohol was? Um, you know, I think I think those the, the, there there's a kind of similar ethos. In fact, the campaigns are quite symbiotic between the effort to control one recreational substance, psychoactive substance, namely alcohol, which was then identified as a kind of you know narcotic in its drug action, and the efforts to control other psychoactive substances, namely marijuana and other more harm what are considered more harmful, cocaine, heroin, etc. Um, so. So I think, you know, it's it, it's always been both. I mean, I think there is a way in which there is a uniquely, um, somewhat uniquely American punitive and penal approach toward these recreational substances, which is 
pretty distinctive and which emerged actually during the alcohol prohibition era. Prior to the 1920s, other forms of narcotic drugs and particularly drug addiction was seen as a, pro- a medical problem, an issue, something which was treated by doctors. You had to feel sorry for addicts, but they were not thought of as criminals. It's in the 1920s when you get the prohibition of one recreational substance that it leads the federal government into prohibiting all sorts of and, and attacking, targeting these other narcotic substances. And it's, of course, in 1937, in the wake of prohibition, that you have the first federal anti-marijuana law. Um, and it comes directly off of the prohibition experience and the way in which narcotics are increasingly seen as these kind of dangerous uh, substances, you know, sort of responsible for criminality, for poverty. All of those arguments one can see happening under alcohol prohibition. And once alcohol prohibition seems like a campaign that will be lost, many of the officials that were involved in it and anti-liquor crusaders themselves turn to targeting other forms of recreational narcotics, uh, which were less controversial in terms of, you know, they were less widespread in their use. They were considered even more dangerous, identified even more with marginal populations, and therefore the consensus around a prohibitionary and penal approach was easier to sustain. So it obviously is something that has lasted coming out of this early era until today. Until today, and as you said, though, we are now finally, there's a moment where there seems to be a bit of a shift uh, sort of breakdown of the consensus on the war on drugs. Let me ask you about, this is a little bit off track, but let me ask you about something that I heard as a kid, and I wouldn't call this an urban myth because this was somebody who lived in a place called Collins Holler in Kentucky, so I'd call it more mm-hmm. of a rural myth. Uh, she uh, told me, my, uh, one of my aunts told me that when she was a kid, she was always told that the reason that there was prohibition is because everybody in their, everybody had uh, whiskey and had laudanum in their homes, but the Kentucky whiskey distillers, the bourbon distillers, they were so concerned about drugs taking away their profits somehow that, you know, somehow big whiskey affected this policy and made it so we're going to now illegalize all other, uh, we're going to illegalize all other drugs. That's how the drug war started. We're going to legalize all other drugs and Mm. save uh, whiskey from that kind of prohibition. Is that just a, is that origin myth of the war on drugs? uh, Is that just a horrible myth? Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, it's actually a really interesting idea, but in, if you look at the archival source material, it does not seem to be the uh, sort of distillers and brewers who by, by now were really out of business in the 1920s that were driving this new approach toward the war on drugs. Uh, it was a wider group of uh, sort of moral entrepreneurs and state builders, some of whom found new homes within the Prohibition Bureau. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, of course, emerged in 1929, right off of, out of the Prohibition Bureau. Um, so, so I don't think you can identify it as sort of those those kind of conspiracy of these of these large distillers and brewers. But there were, I think, some groups that you know, sort of, once you had targeted this one substance, there was a concern, an increasing concern that other that Americans were going to turn from drinking alcohol to 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 consuming other narcotic drugs, right? And so it was logical then to attack and target these other substances. 
Um, so I think that's a better explanation. And I do, I do think there are some, though, people like DuPont who had opposed alcohol prohibition who did put some energies into the anti-drug campaign in the 1920s. And I think that's a really interesting. Perhaps they saw the one as more overreach um, and the other as a more targeted campaign that could be more successful. Um, and, of course, that's what ended up happening, right? Because once you get repeal, you still have, you know, you have an understanding that the government should not uh, prohibit this one recreational substance, that it's not too dangerous to be uh, regulated, but that's not the case with these other narcotic drugs. And so that prohibitionary and penal approach obviously uh, continues and is increasingly muscled throughout the 20th century. You're right. The war on alcohol was a prime example of a recurring theme of United States mass politics, the nation's powerful traditions of evangelical Protestantism and its free willing brand of expansive capitalism emerged in tandem in intention with one another. This combination of forces periodically fueled moral crusades among men and women unsettled by social conflict and change. These reformers turned to the state to stabilize the social order and secure their place within it with strong doses of coercive moral absolutes. Their monumental anxieties over industrial capitalism, mass immigration, and the increasingly large and potentially volatile proletarian populations congealed around the campaign against the saloon and liquor traffic. The nation's first narcotics war focused these myriad grievances on the liquor trade and the social ills it purportedly engendered. And those social ills that it purportedly engendered was kind of the focus of the Anti-Saloon League, which had started back in 1893. Their Mm -hmm. focus was that there were so many saloons. Uh, There's a great book called The Saloon by Perry Dewis that talks about this. There are so many saloons that they had to do something because there was so much competition. They had to draw in more people into their bar. So what they often would do is resort to criminal activities like gambling and prostitution. So how much was this a a war on crime more than Uh a war on industrial capitalism, mass immigration, and the growing number of workers in a growing working class? Right. I mean, it's again. It's, it's I think it's an excellent question. I, I, basically, you know, it, 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 I wouldn't so so much say a war on crime as a war on corruption. What was well, that is a form of crime, right? But but it's the crim. It's the notion of the intersection of the saloon with politics and the corrupting influences of the saloon within these Republican and Democratic political machines in urban cities. So the saloons, not only did they do things like, of course, serve free lunches uh, and do lots of other, uh, as you mentioned, sort of these ways of attracting these working class men and women into saloons, but they also served as a ground floor for politics in urban city centers. So they were places of exchange, often exchanging votes in a way for an alliance with an ethnic ethnic urban boss for free beer or perhaps a job that your your bartender might tell you about. So they served as a kind of, uh, you know, this sort of lowest level rung for uh, the intersection between the machine politics, which dominated urban political life uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, and and the saloons and these urban working class men and women. So in that way, you can say it's you know it's, it's targeting corruption, but it was also the saloon was identified. It was sort of was the concrete symbol for a whole host of changes in urban life. That is 
of course, you know, this sort of mass immigration fundamentally transformed city center spaces. Poor men and women were moving into new neighborhoods, often with unpaved streets, a poor sanitation, very poor because of low wages. And those middle-class reformers targeted, instead of targeting sort of just, you know, they also targeted low wages, but they saw the saloon and the liquor traffic as deeply exploitive of these men and women in, in, in these center, city centers. And it was kind of an easy way of targeting or resolving at least one uh, problem that they could really uh, very much see, which is uh, this excessive drink. And it was a real social problem, of course, particularly at a moment where women were dependent on their husband's family wages. Um, and so it became identified in particular as a kind of gendered issue, a way of trying to protect poor women and their children from the saloon, the drink traffic, and men and men who would stop on their way home from work and have their paycheck essentially drunk away. So this really engenders the kind of paternal nature of the U.S. government, correct? It engenders... If you want to think of it as paternal, uh, you want to think of it as coercive, it pushes the United States in the direction of policing and surveillance, right? Uh, Of course, the very act of making an entire drink trade illegal um, and trying to enforce that led the federal government into, uh, into a much exponentially greater and qualitative new role in policing, right? So the, the, the Bureau of Investigation, which was, of course, the Federal Police Bureau, had was founded in 1908, but it was still minuscule in the 1920s. And by comparison, the Prohibition Bureau is really huge in its size, right? So there are about uh, 3,000 uh, members of both agents and uh, sort of uh, bureau officials in the early 20s, the FBI is is puny. In 1924, it's about 400 agents and 600 total in the Bureau. So you see the way in which Prohibition, and of course, it's not just the Prohibition Bureau that's responsible. It's the Customs uh, Bureau. It's the Coast Guard. And also the the, uh, patrol, the uh, Border Patrol, which, you know, it begins in 1924, and essentially takes on a role in enforcement. So you see a new role for the federal government uh, in an exponentially new way in policing. But what happens, of course, is that no matter this effort, right, how, how largely ambitious this campaign is, it's also impossible to enforce. And as a result, it increases sort of the concerns and a national obsession over crime because there's a whole new class of crime, of criminals. More men and women are being put in prison. There are organized crime rings that are trying to supply Americans with their thirst for alcoholic liquor. Um, So you see in the 1920s this incredible national discourse and discussion over crime. And then, of course, the government who wages war against it. And in that very waging muscles and reorganizing uh, federal agencies uh, sort of brings a whole new level of knowledge about crime and crime control to the federal level. This is the moment, of course, where you have the birth of the Uniform Crime Reports. Uh, It's the moment coming off of Prohibition when the FBI expands its purview. Uh, It's the moment when the Bureau of Prisons is expanded and, uh, you know, escalated in level to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And, of course, it's the moment where the Federal Bureau of Narcotics is born. So all of this comes out of both the war on alcohol and its collateral consequences in terms of the crime and violence it engenders. 
And you write about how this is a policy that was started under Hubert Hoover, but then continued under Roosevelt. Herbert, you write Hubert Hoover was a lifetime whose lifetime of vigorous state building was hidden behind a reputation as an American individualist bolstered the federal penal state. Hoover's approach to the wars on alcohol, crime, and narcotics was consistent with this Quaker engineer's neoliberal sensibility, a political philosophy that would return once more with vigor to Washington in the latter third of the 20th century. Hoover favored the use of expansive state power but for conservative purposes, just as early New Deal economic initiatives built on Hoover's ideas, so too did Roosevelt embrace and extend Hoover's war on crime. Indeed, far less ambivalent about expansive federal powers, the Roosevelt administration pushed uh, pushed them to another level, bolstering the power and visibility of J. Edgar Hoover's fledgling FBI. Long overlooked, these continuities between the New Deal and the Hoover administration comprise some of the most durable achievements of both administrations. So is our or to, to what degree is our current police state then not only a bipartisan creation, mm-hmm. but is that part of the reason why it also experiences bipartisan support? How much do you think the history and legacy of prohibition leads us to today's bipartisan support for secret surveillance of civilians, for instance? Right. Um, well, I do think that there is a way in which, uh, you know, there, there was, uh, in the 1930s, Roosevelt's focus, his, in, in contrast to Hoover, who really championed the war on crime in his inaugural address, uh, was very much, you know, sort of uh, proactively behind uh, enforcement of the 18th Amendment out of his own personal sets of beliefs. Roosevelt was a different political animal. But, of course, he was trying to get through all sorts of uh, social provisioning expansions by the mid-30s, right? He's vastly expanding the state. And one of the easier ways to build a consensus and some support for New Deal measures was to continue this war on crime. Um, And so there's a way in which I think, uh, perhaps not ideologically, that he was so strongly backing the war on crime, but there is this total continuity that one can see coming out of the Hoover administration and linking up to uh, Roosevelt's administration. And so in that way, yes, there is this kind of bipartisan support for building the penal state. And it's, of course, under Roosevelt that you have uh, those early figures, like who I talk about in the book, Richmond Hobson, who had really been one of the key drivers for the war against alcohol. He had been, he introduced uh, the legislation which became the 18th Amendment into the House. He was considered by many the father of prohibition. It's in the 1920s that he turns increasingly to fight this war on drugs. And in 1935, he speaks, you know, with Roosevelt, he sort of writes the speeches, in fact, for uh, Roosevelt's attorney general um, on uh, really the war against drugs. Uh, and so in 35, you have a whole set of speeches about the new narcotics menace um, and the effort to build a uh, sort of uniform state uh, drug laws which are quite interesting because they take a somewhat different approach to the war on drugs, right? They try to, the federal government has a key role to play, but they also try to bring in 
the states in a different way than the war on alcohol did. And so in some ways, they're learning lessons from that overly ambitious war on alcohol and, and shifting directions in a way that's more successful uh, by uh, the term of the Roosevelt administration. You write the 18th Amendment was, after all, one of the nation's most significant policy debacles. After less than 15 years, it became the first and remains the only constitutional amendment to be rescinded. The admission by one former anti-liquor crusader that prohibition was, quote, stupidly wrong and led to an utter disregard for law epitomized a widely accepted verdict by the time of repeal. Such a devastating pratfall, however, distracted contemporaries and later chroniclers from the significant but largely unacknowledged mark left on America's still developing state by this social experiment. Then you add how your book restores national prohibition to uh, to its critical role in the building of the modern American state. But doesn't losing respect for the law undermine the state? I mean, it doesn't really make sense to follow a stupidly wrong policy that led to an Mm -hmm. utter disregard for the law, and yet it still plays a critical role in the building of the modern American state. It would seem like utter disregard for the law means that undermines the state. So why would the state continue a policy that undermines the law they're trying to enforce? So, well, they don't. Right by 33, of course, they rescind it. But it's in the very attempt, right? I mean, in some ways, it's not completely wrong that it was a a failed social policy in the sense that it was so controversial, in the sense that it was so overly ambitious. There was no way the federal government was going to be successful. Um, However, in the very attempt to do so, all a whole set of new institutions are built um, and, of course, there's a new orientation toward policing and surveillance in the effort to enforce the law. Um, and there's, at the most core fundamental level, a vast expansion of federal government authority for this moment, a moment that many tend to think of as a kind of conservative moment of retreat or retrenchment, because we had three Republican administrations during that period. But at the same time, around law enforcement, around penality, the State takes on this very, very large role. And it, it is a role that remains. In other words, those institutions that I mentioned, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the expansion of the prison system, right? You see a huge spike in the numbers in prison at the federal level and also at the state level. The Supreme Court decisions that are basically backing the law, uh, so there's set a whole new kind of set of. of, of, of Legal doctrines come out of uh, prohibition, ones that survive. For example, plea bargaining at the federal level is something that really gets going during the 1920s because the press of legal cases in federal courts, and that is something that continues on the wake of the war on alcohol. So, And also just the expansion, turning toward the federal government for a solution to this national problem leads some to think about the federal government in new ways. So even those who are opposed to the war on alcohol, right, who really seek repeal, they don't necessarily then say, you know, this was a terrible idea. We just need to get rid of federal power. Conservatives did, and conservatives were precisely worried about the fact that this experiment could crack the door open to all sorts of ideas about other forms of regulation. And that's precisely what happened. So you had folks who opposed the war on alcohol who still saw a muscular federal government and sought to use it, turn it in different ways for their own purposes, right? So even immigrant working class men and women, you know, some of them simply wanted repeal, but others, you know, saw, huh, you know, here's an expanded federal power 
let's get rid of the war on alcohol, but it, it sort of it helps to, uh, helps us understand, in other words, the way we got from the progressive era to the New Deal. There's a kind of continuity, a building of federal authority and federal government power. So it's not so much something which one should think of as a kind of moment that didn't matter, right? That that was sort of, uh, you know, thank God we got rid of it. Um, but it's a moment which really, really does influence, I think, uh, the way Americans conceive of state power and the possible uses for that power by 1933 and by, uh, by, by the coming of the New Deal. And, of course, Roosevelt and 1932, the Democratic Party, does not, uh, at that early moment during his campaign, is not talking about, a, you know, a vastly great, greater new social provisioning state. Um, he builds his coalition in part by really, um, by talking about repeal, right? Um, the repeal becomes for the Democratic Party a way of satisfying those conservatives who don't want to grapple with the problems of unemployment and and, and increase government spending, uh, who don't want to, but they see repeal and re-legalizing a whole new industry as a way to essentially appeal to working class men and women who are concerned about both unemployment and prohibition opposition. You talk about uh, selective enforcement and how prohibition is enforced on people who are poor or people who are not white in a completely different way than it is on others, Uh, how it's enforced differently in rural areas than it is uh, done in urban areas. That also leads to kind of common common cause amongst the minorities who are having prohibition enforced on them in a very brutal way. It also, in the way that you describe it, it also kind of uh, uh, motivates the right and gets the right to move together. In the case of the KKK, uh, they actually use prohibition to enforce their kind of vigilantism and their kind of racism that they want to have. So to what degree are the right and the left that exist today? I should say more so, the Democrats and the Republican parties as we see them today, to what degree is is their formation and and their demographics and the people who back their organizations, to what degree is that a result of prohibition in the war on alcohol? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, what's so interesting about the sort of coalition that was built in opposition to prohibition is that it doesn't break down easily on left-right terms, right? So within the Democratic Party, for example, you had these, as you mentioned, these immigrant, ethnic, working class men and women who had been, who felt themselves targeted, uh, both in terms of enforcement and just in terms of their cultural habits and leisure habits, and were deeply opposed to prohibition. So at the same time, you have these elite, very conservative uh, uh, sort of uh, people like John J. Raskob, who had been the chair, finance chair of General Motors, who are equally opposed to the 18th Amendment, the Volstead Act, because they see it as a means of expanding federal authority, and they're concerned about what that means for themselves, for property, right? Um, and and uh, sort of if the government has the right to get rid of one industry, what does it mean for their control of other industries? So they form a coalition, right, by 1928 uh, in the Democratic Party, and it's Al Smith who leads that uh, repeal campaign. But it is it is a really strange set of bedfellows, and that is that's the emergent coalition that Roosevelt then takes in a different direction by uh, 1932 and 1936 during the New Deal. So you can definitely see uh, part of that, that sort of new social base uh, forming within the Democratic Party that lasted for much of the 20th century. The other side of it is what you mentioned about um, 
the Ku Klux Klan and the sort of the right. Um, and although, you know, the right morphs and changes in many, many ways, um, it's not so easy to link up that early Ku Klux Klan with, let's say, the, you know, the sort of uh, post-World War II right, which was somewhat of a different beast and a different animal in terms of where it got its strength and support. But still, you do see in this early moment the way in which the Volstead Act in the 18th Amendment helps to spark the first incarnation of the grassroots right. And that right, though, in some states was linked up to the Democratic Party, and some states was linked up to the Republican Party. So it didn't break down on partisan grounds, but there was this uh, incredible uh, spiral of the Ku Klux Klan, which gained uh, between 2 and 5 million members, in the 1920s, uh, coming out of, essentially, the instrumental use of the law of the 18th Amendment, the Volstead Act, to to serve their own agenda, right? I mean, the Klan was not, one cannot think of it as a temperance organization, but many of the anti-liquor crusaders who had been sort of warriors against alcohol were evangelical white Protestants who were deeply anxious about a whole host of issues. Uh, and they saw the lack of observance during the 1920s and this whole new world of subterranean nightlife leisure that emerged as a, they were deeply concerned about it. And so the Klan was able to utilize the issue of bootlegging to draw many men and women into their ranks. And of course, what they were, what they targeted in, uh, in 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 the issue of bootlegging was the drinking of others. Right? They blamed, not surprisingly, those men and women who they thought of as enemies of 100% Americanism, namely Catholics, African Americans, uh, and immigrants. And this sometimes turned into really targeted local campaigns of terror, um, which I tell the story, in fact, in, in southern Illinois, uh, where the Klan really engaged in a whole set and series of raids, some of which were vigilante, but some of which were actually backed by federal and state enforcement officials. So there's a linkage between these private organizations and the state in these uh, targeted campaigns uh, of really terror. Um, so... So I think you see both. You see the right and the left. Uh, you see, you see, you see the coalition being built within the Democratic Party. You see the emergence of the Klan and the right. But it's again, it's a kind of, I think, a different, somewhat of a different animal. So I wouldn't make a direct kind of continual linkage uh, without, you know, charting out some of the transformations that happen between that older, uh, older set of politics and what what's been happening more recently. The, the, the right-left breakdown doesn't work so well for this, for the understanding the war on alcohol, because progressive men and women, too, backed the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, right? So reform, the reform impulse, the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act, in other words, cannot be understood as a kind of just a conservative uh, reform, right? It really was one which ha- shared a lot of political DNA with things like the income tax, the direct election of senators. Many progressive women, men and women signed on for the campaign, and it's only in its unfolding that it really becomes increasingly identified with this extreme right-wing impulse. You write about uh, kind of dismissiveness, if you will, by historians shortly after uh, the end of uh, shortly after prohibition ended, and you talk about how uh, filling the vacuum there developed an entire genre of sensationalist books and movies set in the prohibition years. And I think this is where most people today who are probably listening have their image of prohibition is from that media. How informed 
or uninformed mm-hmm. is our view of the drug war, even today, by those gangster movies that depict prohibition. There is something similar in terms of, you know, more recently there have been a number of uh, sort of, uh, one could say in the popular media, these popular shows on, on the drug wars or on sort of uh, illicit drugs and their traffics. They share a similar, I think, sense of, let's say, I don't, I, romanticization in a way of these traffics. Um, and, of course, you know, something like Boardwalk Empire, which, you know, it does have that edge of romanticism and nostalgia, even while revealing this incredible, enormous violence, which you see also in these uh, in these sort of forms of popular media. So how informed are these shows? Well, you know, I actually think something like Broadway Empire does a very good job in some ways. The, but the reality is these are unbelievably partial portraits, right? I mean, in showing and sort of emphasizing you get the illicit crime networks, you really get a sense that there was no, there was really no enforcement. You don't get a sense of building prisons, of large escalating overcrowded prisons, of new prison growth, of, of the way in which the law was enforced, just very, very selectively enforced. You get more of a sense of men and women drinking freely in these protected speakeasy spaces instead of a sense of the violence in the surrounding neighborhoods and the impact on poor men and women. So I do think they're, they're, they, they, the reality is that we've had a kind of nostal- almost nostalgic or a bit of a romanticized portrait of uh, these of these eras, um, well, particularly the Prohibition era, but I think increasingly you can see it with some of the more recent shows on the war on drugs, where um, where I think it it does a service in revealing some of you know the ways in which this impinges so centrally on our lives and on our culture, but still remains hidden. For example, that we have about a quarter of the population in both federal and state prisons together there for nonviolent drug offenses, right? Um, And so, of course, you know, in focusing on these these high-level players, you lose a sense of the real impact of those hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands of unseen Americans who are languishing in prisons as a result of these uh, drug wars. Lisa, one last question for you. We have been speaking with historian Lisa McGurr. She is author of The War on Alcohol, Prohibition, and the Rise of the United States. She's a professor at Harvard University, where she specializes in the history of the 20th century U.S. Prior to her new book, The War on Alcohol, Lisa wrote Suburban Warriors, The Origins of the New American Right, which won the 2001 New England Historical Association Book Award and the Robert G. Athern prize in Western American history. One last question for you, Lisa, and it's what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to to answer, or our audience will hate the response. Did we not learn what you call potent lessons on the self-aggrandizing dynamics of the penal state and anti-narcotics activity that we should have learned from prohibition because of that oh-so-American refusal to look back at our own national history, warts and all, is the drug war and the mass incarceration state today due to Americans' unwillingness to have a more honest and potentially more unpatriotic reading of their own country's history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the the fact is that, you know, if, if we if we did not learn the lessons coming off of the, we thought we learned the lessons coming off of the war on alcohol. That is, we, we repealed uh, this grandiose effort. 
But what we did not do is pay attention to the other ways that this dynamic of a penal and punitive approach toward other recreational narcotic substances simply continued. Uh, And of course, by the 60s and 70s, morphs into a huge kind of a new second kind of war on drugs and escalates into the crisis of incarceration we have today. So I do think that, uh, you know, alcohol prohibition, you can better understand both our past and our present and the devastating consequences and counterproductive consequences of making these recreational, of a penal and punitive approach towards psychoactive substances and toward addiction. Lisa, it has been a pleasure having you on this week's This Is Hell. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, When your book comes out with even more content, I'd love to have you back on the show. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm glad that there's a historian out there who is actually looking into prohibition, unlike the people who kind of dismissed it shortly after it was over. Thank you very much for being on this week's This Is Hell. Thanks so much for having me, Chuck. Take care. Chuck spoke with Lisa McGurr in January of 2016. Hi, producer Alex here. You're listening to This Is Hell, a best of episode. We'll be back next week with a new show. Next up, Susanna Rice. What if someone told you that there is no war on drugs? Never has been, never will be. But the war for drugs, the pharmaceutical companies that profit for them, and the U.S. economic power it creates rages on here to tell us how the war on drugs isn't historian Susanna Rice. Susanna is the author of We Sell Drugs, the Alchemy of U.S. Empire. Good morning in Hawaii, Susanna. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for Thank getting you. up so early. Oh, no no problem. I, the only thing I regret is that I couldn't actually hear the full first half of your show. <laughs> <laughs> you should. Uh, the, the one thing is that, that six-month investigation into chemicals, I would really, uh, the chemical industry, it would be great to have you read that article and then tell I me. I did read it, actually, I, and, and I, I got to hear the, the end part well, of, how much of, of that, your conversation. How so much I of that is common within the, within the pharmaceutical industry? How I mean, if the chemical industry is creating science that backs up reasons why their chemicals shouldn't be regulated— does the pharmaceutical industry have that kind of control, or is it a different kind of control over our regulation pro- process? Well, I think, I mean, one thing to realize is that it's the same industry. I mean, the huge, huge chemical companies are involved in producing drugs for human consumption, as well as chemicals that can be used as pesticides or in foods and in all the different kinds of products that your previous guests were talking about. So I think, I mean, the profit incentive behind all of the production and behind all of the studies that are done to guarantee those profits are, are you know, saturate the the. the the regulatory and 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 even the way we talk about the the discussion, I think it's gets sunk into the fact that it's all being motivated by a desire to make money, and that desire to make money often trumps other kinds of public health concerns um, and can become very um, useful in giving those corporations enough influence and sway politically to guarantee their profits, regardless of the cost for people who may come in contact um, legally or illegally with, with the products that their, their, their um, laboratories are churning out. 
So, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of uh, frightening. So you start your book, the United States government has never waged a war on drugs. On the contrary, drugs in general and so-called narcotic drugs, such as cocaine in particular, constitute part of a powerful arsenal that the government flexibly deploys to wage war. And it demonstrates its ca- capacity to bring health, peace and economic pr- prosperity. But I am certain the government, especially those from the Reagan era on of being very hard on drugs, would differ. How is trying to stop the production, import, and distribution of, say, marijuana? Well, let's focus on cocaine because your book is mostly about the coca product. Mm -hmm. Uh, How is that not a war on cocaine? Um, Well, there's still legal cocaine being produced by American pharmaceutical companies. Um, And so that's that's sort of at the heart of what I'm trying to... um, bring out uh, into the conversation is that drugs themselves aren't legal or illegal, even though when people think of illegal drugs, I'm sure, you know, cocaine is one of the drugs that would pop into mind. But there actually is legal cocaine. It's used as a local anesthetic in surgeries, eye, ears, nose, mouth, throat surgeries. Um, It's also being produced for all sorts of different scientific research and experimentation. So there is legal cocaine out there. Um, And I think that when you say cocaine and automatically the public's attention thinks or is focused on the idea of an illicit market, it is only telling or is only getting people to think about really half or not even half of the story that all of these um, products are being produced and it's not whether or not they're legal, but rather who is able to be involved in their production, distribution, consumption. Um, and every drug that's out there, there is a legal market for it. Um, and so I think that's um, part of the issue in that it's not necessarily an attack on cocaine, but an attack in the story that I'm telling. I started during World War II. It's an attack on certain communities who use coca leaves, with the, which is the um, raw material that cocaine is derived from, um, in ways that the international pharmaceutical industry and the international drug regulatory regime have deemed illegal, um, even though, for instance, where coca leaves come from, the Andes, um, particularly Peru and Bolivia, it's been used there for millennia in all sorts of different kinds of ways as uh, something to be chewed, something to be um, steeped in a mate, a tea, um, as part of spiritual um, or ritual practices. And yet you have people coming in in the 1940s and 50s, people being representatives of the United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs, um, people operating under the influence of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics of the United States in collaboration with local political leaders in, in the region, saying, okay, now these these practices that have been around for millennia are now illegal because we want this market exclusively being exported to North American pharmaceutical houses that will then turn it into what we deem legitimate scientific and medical uses. There's a huge caveat to that with coca and products derived from it. Um, The products derived from coca leaves include cocaine hydrochloride, um, both legal and illegal, um, and uh, the drink Coca-Cola. So written into national and international treaties that are were designed to control the drug trade was an exception for the Coca-Cola company so that it could still retain access to coca leaves, which it still uses in creating its 
famous uh, <laughs> soft drink Coca-Cola, but um, uh, it's sort of secret merchandise number five. The, the secret ingredients that are part of the drink include extracts from the coca leaf. And so my my point was to try to dramatize the fact that powerful, influential players can still use drug raw materials that are labeled narcotic under international drug control treaties um, because of their clout, um, even while less powerful groups like Aymara and Quechua, indigenous people in the Andes, are faced with a different kind of policing and surveillance of practices that they had embraced and, and, and were part of their traditional culture and social practices. And these are desperate and poverty-stricken people, and so why can't they simply come up with a soda themselves that has the coca leaf product within it to compete with Coca-Cola, seeing as how they have the coca leaf right there. I know they would have to come up with some sort of different formula, but why can't why can't they just come up with a competing thing to go against Coca-Cola and maybe at least make some money that way? Because I think that this will reveal to us exactly how the industry is controlled. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, the fact is they have. There there are many drinks, actually. Um, there is an Inca-Cola. I'm not sure if that one uses coca leaves, but there are many, many um, sodas and other kinds of drinks that are produced in the Andes, particularly in Peru. In Peru, there's a national um, agency um, that is a, essentially a, operates as a monopoly in terms of taking coca leaves and producing a whole wide array of different products, including toothpastes and pastas and drinks and teas, all sorts of things. Um, so locally in the regional market, you can actually get access to products that are derived from the coca leaf and industrialized there in the region. The problem is that because of the way that international drug treaties are written, they can't export any of that from the region because there are constraints about the quantities of coca, which international regulators equate with cocaine, which is uh, a vast oversimplification. The leaf actually has all sorts of other kinds of vitamins and alkaloids in it. But regardless, any trace of the cocaine alkaloid, which is going to be there if you're using coca leaves in a drink, um, renders it illegal for export, um, at least to the United States. The United States won't, won't import any of that. I actually, when I was doing research for the book, I was in Peru um, talking with the then president of Inaco, which is the, the, the national coca monopoly in Peru that's run by the government. Um, and he was asking, he thought, I, and I don't have any influence to be able to do this, but he was asking me to present all this paperwork to the U.S. State Department to prove that they could actually export their products without any traces of the cocaine alkaloid um, remaining, even if they were using coca leaves. Um, in the same way that Coca-Cola does that, they extract the cocaine alkaloid before they use the leaves in their drink. Um, but so far, he showed me letters from the U.S. government. They haven't, they haven't been able to actually crack, crack open access to that market, which I think just speaks to the way in which the sort of international economic scene is severely um, biased or, or, yeah, basically is creates these forms of uneven development that have locked in historically 
places like the United States as the industrial manufacturers and places like Peru and Bolivia as the providers of raw material for that international marketplace, which puts them in an extremely vulnerable position to the kind of vagaries of, of, of the market because they're, they're reliant on, on producing for export, but producing for export in ways that are very strictly controlled and limited to the production of, at least in terms of cocoa, raw materials rather than finished manufactured goods. Uh, drug warriors here in the States would say that the thing that they are concerned about when it comes to cocaine is addiction, public health, uh, that kind of thing. But if Bolivia and Peru were able to sell, to export, to sell coca products internationally, what effect would that have on the illegal cocaine market within Bolivia and uh, Peru and their exporting to the United States? If we allowed Bolivia and Peru into the market, wouldn't that kind of undermine dangerous cocaine being on the market? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I, it's hard to see the relationship in some way between... I, I mean, I think that the more, the wider the net is cast in terms of who can participate legally, it's going to limit, I mean, it's going to automatically reduce the scope and scale of the illegal market. I mean, the legal market essentially delineates what's illegal. So if you if you say, okay, now this is legal, then that's one less thing that's illegal. So, I mean, at that level, I think um, it would diminish um, um, the, the illegal flows. But there are also, I mean, I think... Obviously, the production of coca teas is driven by a different kind of consumer interest than the production of cocaine. And so I don't know, you know, I I, I am not sure that if you produce more tea, that would mean that there's less cocaine on the market. Um, I think that the problem with cocaine, I mean, cocaine is sort of interesting because it's not actually, I mean, right now I think that the majority of of public health damage that's happening with illegal drug consumption is completely tied to the legal industry, and it always has been, um, particularly the overprescription of painkillers, um, opiates, and, and synthetic versions of opiates, oxycodone, and all of that kind of stuff that when people get addicted to it, then they run out of their prescription and they turn to the illegal market and start buying things like heroin, which there's been a massive spike in the last five years of heroin consumption in the United States exactly because of those reasons. Um, and so I think there's there's sort of a couple um, aspects to the problem, one being, I think, an over-reliance on drugs in general as as the go-to solution for whatever ailment, and particularly an over-reliance on painkillers. Um, but I also think that the, I mean, one interesting thing in writing about this history is that there wasn't a, a huge drug problem in the way that we conceive of a drug problem in terms of a big illicit market where people are consuming drugs and potentially overdosing or whatever. There wasn't actually a problem when, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, there was a massive um increase in in efforts at creating drug regulation and policing both nationally in the United States and internationally. And I think actually that it's the policing of drugs that generated in many ways the problem of of illegal drug markets and 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 the dangers that are inevitably attached to to those illegal places where there's less oversight over what's actually 
being cut with whatever drug it is that people are consuming, um, where it's more dangerous to buy the drug. And so I feel like the problem was as much created by the policing of it as rather rather than um, sort of like a chicken and egg thing. I don't think it was a problem that then was met with policing. I think the policing generated the problem. Um, and so I think it's both about allowing more people to participate in, in the marketplace itself, but also about changing the the approach to regulating the drug. And I would argue that all drugs should be decriminalized because I don't see the value in, in or I see that, that I would argue that there's more harm done than good in, in approaching it as a, as a criminal question as opposed to an economic or public health question. How much did the U.S. exploit World War II in order to solidify the power of the U.S. Pharma, pharmaceutical industry over the rest of the world? I don't know if they exploited it, but it was a golden opportunity for the United States in a certain sense. And maybe they did exploit it in Latin America, especially. But the United States went into World War II. Well, obviously, the United States wasn't directly affected by World War II in terms of its own infrastructure. And, and there are obviously no attacks aside from here in Hawaii and Pearl Harbor on, on the continental United States, which meant that the United States was able to invest massive amounts of money into infrastructure and in particular into expanding the pharmaceutical industry and having it be able to mass produce drugs that were going to facilitate the war effort. So you had soldiers traveling to tropical countries where they were in danger of catching malaria, and the United States pharmaceutical houses were given subsidies to help churn out um, anti-malarial drugs, penicillin, um, and, and, and other new concoctions that were essentially going to um, make their soldiers <laughs> better fighters um, and out of, keep them out of pain or at least um, heal more quickly once they got injured or, or infected with disease. So there's that aspect of it where it just facilitated the growth of pharmaceutical manufacturing in general. But more specifically, the U.S. before the war, its primary competitors in terms of pharmaceutical production on the international market were Germany and Japan. And Germany actually was the major supplier of drugs to um, countries across Latin America. So one thing that the U.S. government did is it established a Bureau of Economic Warfare, and that bureau went down to Latin America, and they weren't just going after drugs, but one thing they did try to do was to blacklist, essentially, any German or Japanese companies that were producing pharmaceuticals or distributing pharmaceuticals in that market um, and attempt to replace them or encourage local governments to turn to the U.S. manufacturers uh, as substitutes um, for German manufacturing. Um, and they had a real problem doing that. In many other sectors of the economy, Peru and Bolivian officials were, or Peruvian Bolivian officials were perfectly willing to say, okay, we'll blacklist those German companies. But when it came to drugs, there was a problem. They couldn't actually get access, American drug companies hadn't penetrated the market enough to be able to supply or provide substitutes for for what had been German supplies. So that became one of their kind of issues of, of, uh, of uh, major, well, it became a priority for them. 
Um, and so what the U.S. government did is it strong-armed American companies with both sort of carrots and sticks, threatening and promising them um, different rewards or punishments if they did, if, in order to get them to start to supply those drugs, which they ultimately were able to do. Um, so they pushed Germany and Japan out of those markets. American drug companies moved into those markets. Um, and then at the end of the war, even more, I guess, um, as a sort of final um, death knell to competition, um, the United States obviously occupied Japan and Germany, and they shut down their drug industries. And they, in Germany in particular, they sent in American pharmaceutical executives to pillage, essentially, the research that German drug companies had been doing and bring it back to the United States. So the United States, at the end of the war, found itself in this really unique position of being essentially the biggest drug manufacturing country in the world who was occupying its primary competition and who had already devised ways of making sure other countries would be dependent on American drug supplies. You write how the U.S. projects its power through drugs, but as you point out, we think of Nixon as starting the war on drugs. <laughs> Yet, as our correspondent in Mexico City, Laura Carlson, mentioned last week, in 1940, Mexico was moving toward ending marijuana prohibition, and the U.S. threatened to stop the export of all drugs and medicines to Mexico, so Mexico backed down. So exactly how new is the U.S. war on drugs, and how long has, the U- has U.S. power been built up by our war for drugs? Yeah, you know, that, that's a good question. I mean, I think I, I start my story in World War Two or World War Two and its immediate aftermath because I think that's a moment where just because of the geopolitical circumstances, the United States emerged in an unpre- unprecedented position of global power and as did its pharmaceutical industry. But you're right, it actually goes back much further to the late 19th century, essentially. Um, which And you started to see this, I mean, with... I mean, the war on drugs, I, I argue it's more about um, sort of economic and strategic considerations than public health considerations. But one thing that it's also lent itself to is to being able to use it as a weapon to attack other nations or even people within the nation who are deemed um, undesirable. So in the late 19th century, you had local ordinances going up uh, around the nation, particularly in California, against um, Chinese, uh, or driven by a kind of racist fear of Chinese opium consumption. Um, By 1914, you have the first federal drug law passed in the United States, the Harrison Narcotics Act, and that was being driven very explicitly by a fear of African-American cocaine consumption. In the 1930s, you have uh, marijuana tax acts, Past, which was driven very explicitly by a fear of Mexican-American alleged marijuana consumption and the threat that that ostensibly posed to white middle-class American children, um, and on and on and on. So you always, there's always this aspect of it, and it definitely goes back much earlier than, than World War II. Um, but it's not until World War II that you really, I mean, after, from about, well, from the early 1900s, you had intermittent efforts at international drug control, um, efforts by the industrial countries, particularly the United States and England, to try to implement an international drug control regime um, that initially targeted 
opium and coca leaves and products derived from them. Um, but it never actually fully became, it never congealed into a system with enough participants to make it really operational. And yet after World War II, you start to see that level of international collaboration. And again, I would argue that that was largely due to the influence that the United States was able to wield, um, particularly in the newly established United Nations Commission on Narcotic Drugs. You want to change the way we conceive of the drug problem. Our popular understanding of the war on drugs is derived from the selectivity of our focus. Contemporary debate over whether excessive and dangerous drug consumption should be approached as an issue of criminal justice or medical disease obscures the fact that drug control for the first five decades of its implementation in the United States was pursued under the authority of the Department of the Treasury's Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Drug control was institutionalized through market regulations to secure adequate supplies of drugs while limiting and delineating the legal boundaries of their circulation. So in the beginning, it was about the bottom line, not any sociological or scientific issue. To what degree has that changed, and how much has the government obscured the war on drugs goal of what you see it as, which is economic hegemony? Um, I don't think it's, I mean, I I don't think it's changed. I think what's changed is that it's become integrated into our mainstream discussions in ways that have, I think, rendered the issue often um, a question of morality. Um, it, it maps onto people's prejudices about one another and different racial groups or, 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 or classes in society. Um, I mean, one, one way, I mean, one thing that actually got me interested in talking about this history to begin with was just looking around the world that we live in today and seeing, I mean, I started more than a decade ago, but even a decade or two ago, um, looking and seeing how the pharmaceutical industry has the capacity to market all sorts of drugs, even unnecessary drugs. Um, You know, I mean, all these things that are now marketed directly to the public on television, many of them are essentially for manufactured um, ailments, um, I don't know, all the different things that they, you know, do, are your legs restless at night? Do you feel lonely in crowds? Or I don't know what, you know, all sorts of weird things. And that the, you have the drug industry being one of the most profitable industries in the United States. And at the same time, you have the majority of people in American prisons there for nonviolent drug crimes. And so I think that contradiction persists. And I think that until we start to think about how drugs are being advertised as the answer for everything, Um, and yet certain populations who turn to drugs for whatever they turn to them for, maybe in even unhealthy ways, they get criminalized for consuming those drugs, even while pharmaceutical companies are trying to get all of us, particularly people who have, well, resources to buy drugs and access to doctors to get prescriptions for drugs, um, to consume more and more drugs. So I think that that um, the contradiction isn't going away, and I think it is something that is still remains, um, well, very much below the radar. Because when people talk about the drug problem, they're not usually talking about the legal pharmaceutical industry. <laughs> I mean, uh, except for your your previous guests, in a way, when they're talking about the chemical industry. Because, yeah, so I, I I do think that the the contradictions um, are ongoing, and and that 
I mean, there are also calls, and this is coming out of indigenous movements in the Andes who have rejected the idea that they should not consume coca in the ways that they traditionally have. But also there's even an international um, movement among uh, very powerful people, including Kofi Annan, the former head of the United Nations, or Ge- Secretary General of the United Nations, um, former presidents of Mexico, of Colombia, um, and other uh, major kind of politically influential people are all calling for a dramatic revision in terms of the way that we regulate drugs and even calling for decriminalization. And so I think um, those contradictions are there, but there are groups and influential groups who are trying to point out the contradictions and suggest that the current way of managing them is, uh, is unsustainable and needs to be So is the real threat then for the U.S. in ending the war on drugs, not whatever sociological issues that may arise, but a deteriorating U.S. power overseas and police power domestically? Uh, Yes, I think so. I think that says it very well. I mean, the war on drugs has been, as Michelle Alexander has argued in the new Jim Crow, I mean, it's been an enormously powerful tool of social control. And that's and 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 I try to say also of 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 uh, providing a mechanism for for extending American geopolitical influence internationally. Um, but I do think that its primary function is that it justifies a level of policing and and provides a, a kind of moral or cultural rationale behind targeting certain groups as if you're targeting them because of some unhealthy practice when I would argue, in fact, you know, the majority of people who consume drugs legally or illegally in the United States are are white people. Uh, And yet the majority of people who end up in prison for it are not. And so I think even just that basic fact illustrates the, the, the kind of political nature of policing um, that has historically accompanied this this so-called war on drugs. How integral, then, is the growing profits of pharmaceuticals, big pharma, to the U.S. economy? Are we a drug-based economy, and how much are those profits enhanced by the war on drugs? That's a really great question. I mean, drug companies' profits themselves, I mean, I don't I think that the problem with those profits is that they're not redistributed <laughs> to everybody, right? So, so I, we're a drug economy in the sense that our, our, our consuming practices and the way that the government subsidizes certain kinds of research and development and the way that we tolerate ridiculously high prices for basic medicines. I mean, in that sense, I think we are very much an economy that is one of the pillars of that economy uh, are drugs. But I don't think, um, well, as I said, obviously those profits aren't, aren't redistributed um, to, to the rest of the population. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. How much did our international drug control regime, which is a far better phrase than war on drugs. How much did our international drug control regime lead to the rise of uh, what so many call 
um, banana republics and their dictators. How much did this lead to even a possibility of people in uh, Latin America to have an anti-American point of view because of the governments that it created who wanted to ally themselves with the U.S. pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. I mean, I think there have been instances where you could argue that there was a direct direct tie between uh, uh, the overthrow of a government and and the um, establishment of a dictatorship that was based on essentially capitalizing on the illegal drug trade, and that happened actually in Bolivia. Um, in the seventies, but but for the most part, I think it's more of a tool that can be used to influence governments to ally with the United States, um, and it's not necessarily the driving force behind the establishment of those regimes, but it is in, within the kind of toolbox subsequently to get them to go along with whatever the policy priorities of the American government might have been in a given place. So, for example, in Peru, um, in the 1940s, there was a military coup, um, and the general that came in, one of the first things that he did was to implement uh, national drug control laws. Um, and he did that very explicitly to try to curry favor um, using his friend, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics um, Commissioner Harry Anslinger, but also trying to curry favor with American um, State Department representatives and, and others um, in, in the country by saying, look, we'll go along with the effort that you're pursuing at the moment to implement drug control if you'll also back our government. And so I think, you know, I think that there's, and, and, and there, there are many historians who've, who've charted the ways that people like Al McCoy, um, looking at heroin in Southeast Asia and how it was implicated in, in the U.S. Um, war effort in Vietnam, but also tied to um, the Golden Triangle in, in Burma and Laos. And, and, and um, so I think that, that drugs are just sort of part of an arsenal that, that can be used to raise money, to shuttle materials um, under the radar, um, to strong-arm local officials or to take advantage of local um, drug warlords. I mean, that's been happening in Afghanistan, where the United States ostensibly is fighting against um, opium or, or poppy leaf cultivation in Afghanistan, and yet it's been very well documented the ways in which in certain regions uh, U.S. military personnel are openly um, collaborating with the local drug lords because those are the influential people in the region. And so, so there's always, you know, there's the there's a lot of hypocrisy in 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 the vision of a drug war um, that presumes that the United States is always trying to limit the the market when in fact it can capitalize on that market in various political, economic, military, strategic ways. We're seeing a rise in decriminalization within Latin America, decriminalization of drugs in Latin America and, and South America. How much, uh, Central and South America, I should say, how much do uh, U.S. drug controls hurt the development of Latin American economies? And is the reason that the decriminalization is happening is because they see the impact on their bottom line, not necessarily some cultural or societal change? Um, I think you're probably right. I think, it, I mean... I think that 
probably the most devastating impact that the U.S. drug war has had on the region is that it stimulates the illegal market in a strange way. And so one of the things that that does is it um, creates enormous amounts of instability and violence as you have different groups that are trying to capitalize on how lucrative this illegal, these illegal commodities are, and, and they're partially so um, valuable and profitable because they're illegal. Um, and so you have organized groups that are trying to take advantage of that, but in the process it creates uh, um, extremely violent and dangerous circumstances. I mean, and as the United States then funds massive amounts of military and paramilitary interventions in the region to ostensibly go after drug traffickers, they're also used in all sorts of political ways where they go after drug traffickers that are often political opponents to the regimes that the United States wants to support, or vice versa. They support people who are trying to overthrow regimes that they don't politically ally with. Um, and so in that process, I mean, I, when I, the time period I talk about in the book, the 19, well, from the 1940s through the 1960s, the majority of coca and cocaine that was being produced in the region was being produced in Peru and Bolivia. After they started to crack down on that, it moves to Colombia. People always associate cocaine now, I think, with Colombia, but that's actually a relatively recent 70s and 80s phenomena that it actually began to be produced there on any kind of significant scale. Now it's actually moved back to Peru because of the drug war in Colombia. So Peru now is the biggest legal and illegal producer um, of, of cocaine. Um, but uh, well, it's sort of like whack-a-mole. It moves around. Um, but in the process of moving around, you have, because of the massive military interventions that are ostensibly designed to go after drug trafficking, you ha- that has an enormous toll on the local population, on the environment. They, they're spraying pesticides to try to eradicate crops. Those pesticides are leaching into other food and substance. Uh, uh, subsistence crops that people are growing. Um, You have just the human toll of people being caught literally in the crossfire. Um, So many of those young refugees that are coming out of Central America right now, they're essentially drug war refugees. Um, Honduras, I mean, the, 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 the way in which these, as soon as you have political instability, the coup in Honduras a few years ago, opened up a kind of free-for-all for for all sorts of different gangs and groups that were trying to capitalize, especially on the drug market. And those groups, many of them are actually allied directly or indirectly with the government or with paramilitary groups, and it just creates enormous amounts of violence and instability that that leads to the kinds of massive exodus that, that we saw this summer with all of those young people showing up at the American border and then facing another uh, wave of demonization as so-called illegal immigrants or whatever. Susanna, I can't <clears throat> stress enough to our listeners that they should get your book because there's some stuff. I mean, we, I wish 
<clears throat> I wish we could talk for another half hour because uh, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, like you point out that the pharmaceutical industry, the U.S. policy favoring the pharmaceutical industry kind of adds to this permanent state of war that people are really concerned about when you come to the war on terror. And you even point out how the war on drugs criminalizes dissent. And I'm just giving people those teasers so they go <laughs> out and buy your book because those are two amazing points that we weren't able to get to today. We have been speaking with historian Susanna Rice. She is author of We Sell Drugs, the Alchemy of U.S. Empire. Susanna trained as an historian of 20th century U.S. history in the African diaspora, with particular emphasis on Latin America, the Caribbean, and Canada. She is an assistant professor of history at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. All right. So, uh, Susanna, one last question for you. And as we do with all of our guests, it's the question uh-huh. from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate the response. And my question was going to be, is cocaine to U.S. empire what opium was to British the British empire? But instead of making people look up what opium was to the British empire, <laughs> let me ask you something more contemporary. Given this historic <laughs> context of what you have explained, how U.S. pharmaceutical policy, how the war for drugs works for the U.S. around the world, how should we view things like the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, different? Because differently? Because Al Jazeera, this is early October, uh, they report the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade deal reached between the United States and 11 Pacific Rim nations, will regulate 40% of the world's economy. The way it will affect one industry, pharmaceuticals, is getting particular scrutiny, as some warn that the deal could cause a spike in generic drug prices and threaten access to life-saving treatments. Doctors Without Borders and other health rights advocacy groups say that millions of people with HIV, hepatitis C, Ebola, and other diseases will be affected by provisions in the deal that the groups say will make it harder for companies to develop drugs based on previously available research and will lengthen patent protections. Doctors Without Borders issued a statement calling the deal, quote, the worst trade agreement for access to medicines in developing countries in history. How much is the TPP, the continued strategy of U.S. economic hegemony, and why does the rest of the world allow this hegemony? Because the TPP did get signed, although it now faces each nation's national legislatures for approval. Yeah, well, I mean, all of those those quotes you're giving are accurate. It's terrifying and it's shameful what they're doing, I think. Um, I mean, the from what I, I haven't read the text of the agreement itself. I've only heard snippets and read some of the articles that I, you actually just referred to there. Um, but I think it's it's terrifying because it's it's such a, a step back in, in in many ways in terms of just struggles, particularly that were being led by countries like Brazil and India, to establish national drug manufacturing industries that could produce drugs at prices that would be affordable for the local populations. That's been an ongoing struggle, and they've had so many lawsuits, patent lawsuits, that they've had to go through for various particular drugs that they've sought to produce generically, and many of them they won. But from what I can tell from this new trade agreement, it's going to make all those efforts at providing affordable drugs much, much more difficult and in some cases even impossible. Um, and so I think that's it, it's, 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 it's terrible, and it does reflect American power in a, in a profound way, and, and, and European power too. I mean, now, World War II, the, the industry in Europe had been essentially devastated, but now there is an, a resurgent European um, pharmaceutical manufacturing market as well. But so for Europe and the United States, Essentially, I mean, this is the thing 
that's sort of unique about drugs is that you can the the reason why other countries have to go along with it is because their populations need the drugs. <laughs> and so if 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 you have, you know, these essential valuable commodities, and I'm not talking about cocaine now, but even just things like, you know, penicillin, things to stop infections, um, uh, aspirin, all sorts of, you know, or as you're pointing out, um, uh, HIV drugs that can actually prevent the onset of full-fledged um, AIDS, um, all of these things that are so um, essential to to people in their everyday lives, if they can't get access to them, um well, they're they're trapped. There's there's no option. And so, I mean, it's sort of if the United States and, and European pharmaceutical houses say, well, you you just can't have this drug, then you know that's a really powerful kind of threat to to get other countries to go along, even if it often means that the poorest and most vulnerable sectors of their population are quite likely going to be priced out of the market and and well have not just health problems, but many people will die because of it. And I, 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 I don't know how to fight back against something that was negotiated in such secrecy with so many handouts for some of the most powerful players in the international marketplace. But that's that seems to be where we're at at this moment. Susanna, a true pleasure having you on the show this week. Historian Susanna Rice is author of We Sell Drugs, The Alchemy of U.S. Empire. You go to thisishell.com, you click on the title of the book, and it takes you directly to the Harvard University Press publisher's page where you can purchase the book. University of California. I'm sorry, University (laughs) of California. You're right. University (laughs) of California. I forgot. My apologies. University of California Press. I don't want to piss those people off because University of California <laughs> Press, they have lots of power. Thank you so much, Susanna. I really <laughs> Thank appreciate you so much, Take care. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Chuck spoke with Susanna Rice in November of 2015. You're listening to This Is Hell. It's producer Alex here filling in for Chuck, who's dealing with a dental emergency. Next up, Sam Quinones from June of 2015. If deaths were the measurement this wave of opiate abuse was the worst drug scourge to ever hit the country, Sam writes. So why don't we know about this scourge as much as we do the crack scare of the 1980s or the smack epidemic of the 1970s? And how did prescription drugs lead to heroin overdoses? Here to tell us, journalist Sam Quinones, author of Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Thanks for being on our show, Sam. Uh, it's certainly my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So what is the current state, then, of that scourge that you were writing about back in 2007? I, I know that it, it's happened in different places at different times, but what is the current state of that scourge? And is it is the problem still worse than the heroin epidemic of the 1970s and the crack scare of the 1980s, which we all know was very exaggerated? Uh, well, I would say, if you're, uh, again, if, the, if death is the measurement, certainly is. Uh, lots more people have, have been dying of overdoses um, um, to, to heroin and prescription pills, uh, something on the order of, uh, well, it depends how you measure, and a lot, of, a lot of them kind of sleep through the cracks, but there's something on the order of about 25,000 uh, people a year uh, dying from, from these drugs. And, um, and it's, it, what's, what, what makes it um, um, most, I guess, Otherwise notable, I say, is that it's happening in states that never, ever, ever had had an opiate uh, uh, addiction problem. Uh, Alabama, um, you know, Vermont, places like that, Tennessee, 
it's it's a remarkable thing to 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 behold. And I would say it's it's much worse. What's what we're happening now? What's happening now? What we're seeing now is that the transition from a, a prescription pills to heroin is happening uh, uh, in many places uh, uh, all across the country as well. Where, whereas lots of people used to be addicted, uh, may have been a bit addicted a few years ago to, to pills, uh, that transition is now happening uh, uh, to, to heroin. Sometimes because they can't find the pills, uh, other times because simply uh, the transition is almost a natural one uh, if you stay addicted to these pills long enough. Uh, you, you, you run out of resources, the pills are very expensive on the street, and heroin now is, uh, in, in uh, contrast to the epidemic that we had in, in the early 70s, mid-70s, uh, heroin is amazingly cheaper now. And, and so, so that, that transition from pills to heroin is really uh, the story that's going on across the country now as well. And it's not just heroin, it's black tar heroin. And a lot of the people who you talk to in the book, uh, parents of people who end up dying from addiction, end up overdosing, they don't even know what black tar heroin is until they find out their uh, child died from it. So what makes black tar heroin different from the kind of heroin that we may have seen in the 1970s in movies like The French Connection or whatever, or you might have actually seen in person in the 1980s? Right. Uh, <laughs> in a word, it's just price. Uh, you know, all heroin is a commodity, and 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 uh, it, the difference between black tar heroin and the white powder heroin you're referring to is simply in processing. There's more processing that goes into the white powder heroin, and so you get pick out the you filter out the impurities through various processes. A uh, black tar heroin looks like Tootsie Rolls, very sticky. Uh, it's kind of black and tarish, and um, it has a as a um, um, it, it's very cheap to make. Also, uh, it's made now in, in our hemisphere. The only place it's made is in Mexico. Uh, and so it's very cheap. It's already much closer to the United States than the heroin was of the 1970s, which was made in Turkey or Burma, Southeast Asia, places like that, uh, much cheaper. And so, therefore, as a commodity, it's just simply much, much cheaper now uh, on, on the streets. And it's being sold by um, almost always by by Mexican uh, traffickers uh, into the United States, bringing it into the United States. They also make uh, brown powder heroin, which is a little bit more processed, but probably the most, the most prolific kind of uh, quantities are, are in, are in uh, uh, black tar. And so the, this is, Mexican traffickers are now our, our heroin traffickers, by and large. Even if uh, there, was a, there was a bust in New York City a while back, a couple weeks ago, where the, one of the biggest busts of heroin in, the, in, in, in New York's history, which is saying a lot because that's been our heroin hub for 100 years now, uh, that came in, uh, that was, those were Mexican traffickers. They were Mexican traffickers who were selling Colombian heroin. Colombians say, hey, we'll sell it to the Mexicans, let them take the risk, we'll get our little profit out of it, and, and they can take the risk and get, get the bigger profit, but they can also run bigger risk. And, and so... Almost all heroin now is coming through Mexico, touching Mexican traffickers, even if it's made uh, in Colombia now. So the the black tar heroin that is produced in Mexico, is yeah. that grown? Are, are there poppies now yeah. being grown in Mex- okay, cause that, Mex- cause- Mexico? Okay. Mexico has been a producer of, of opium poppies since uh, it had a, an influx of Chinese immigrants in the early, 19, in, in the early 20th century. 
uh, late late 19th century, but mainly early 20th century, 1910, 1915. There was lots of uh, Mexico was known in those years in China as a land of opportunity. A lot of Mexicans, uh, a lot of Chinese, I'm sorry, began coming over, and they brought the the, the poppy with them. And it grows very very uh, nicely. And there's a, a a deep folklore now or folk craft in in growing the poppy, but also knowing how to uh, uh, harvest the bulb. The bulb on top of the flower looks like a ping pong ball. You have to know how to cut it open and harvest the goo. The goo is the opium goo in, in, inside the flower. That's uh, that, that's so that's the drug. Basically, contains the drug. And so in, in Mexico, there's now long, long history of of use of uh, of cultivating and harvesting the, flop, the poppy. But if there is that long history, and as you point out, they know that this is coming from the Jalisco region, from the state of Nayarit in uh, Mexico. Uh, and if the Mexican government knows that this is the area that it's coming from, if they know that there's been a long history of this, that this isn't just a refining station, this is an actual production place as well as a refining station. And Mexico supposedly is as much into the militarization of the U.S. war on drugs as the United States is, mm-hmm. then why isn't the Mexican government targeting this singular area where it seems that the poppies can go? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I think a, a lot of the answer has to do with the fact that the guys you're talking about, now, first of all, your, your listeners should know, the, guys you, the, the, the region you're talking about is, is first of all, it's part of my, a big part of the book. And, and the reason it is, is is that there's one town in this region, the town of Jalisco, in the state of Nayarit. Jalisco is a small town, Nayarit, a very small state. Um, it's about, about 12 hours south of Arizona, just due south, if you go on the map. Um, and, and this one town has learned, or developed, innovated a method for selling black tar heroin in the United States, retail, small doses, tenth of a gram doses, and selling it like pizza. There's a, they have a system of kind of an operator standing by to take the addict's, uh, addict's order and then have a driver uh, drive a, uh, uh, the, 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 the order over to him, uh, and usually meeting in some parking lot of a Burger King or a Target or someplace like that. Um, this area has become one of our our most prolific sources of of heroin in into the United States for and it's been been so for for a good number of years now I'd say 15 20 years or so. They however have designed their system is designed in the United States to look very very small time. These guys don't drive lavish cars. They dress down, they look like a a, a, a day worker in front of a Home Depot. Uh, they don't party. They're not, there's no shootouts. They never have guns. They're not. They're not flashing their bling all over the place. Uh, they are really, really designed. They have designed a system to look like they are all minor, small-time nobody dealers. And they and that's this is how each they they have cells or, or stores. They call them little little networks of operator and a few drivers. Uh, you could have uh, six or eight of these in any in, in any given town. And they're all competing among themselves. They don't shoot each other or anything like that. It's a, it's a remarkable and amazing system in which heroin is dealt like pizza and is dealt on the basis of branding, of convenience, of customer service, and not at the barrel of a gun. That's really important to understand how that, how that works. In order to do that, though, they, as I said, they have tried their level best to look small time, to look like they are just the smallest nobody dealers on, on, on the street. Each cell will will maybe be doing uh, uh, maybe a couple of kilos a, a month to the cartels and to the Mexican government in Mexico. 
they are also they also look small time. That's one of the beauties of this system, I think, in in, in the eyes of the guys who are in it, in that the cartel, the the Sinaloa cartel, had they known that these guys were dealing, you know, as a group, um, hundreds of kilos a, a year, say in 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 heroin, they might have paid attention. But the problem is, all these little groups look like they're very small time, just individual dealers, both here in the United States and back home in Mexico. The same is true of the Mexican government. I think they have much bigger fish to fry in the neighboring state of Sinaloa, which has the Sinaloa cartel, which is one of the most uh, fearsome probably uh, drug organizations in the world. They have uh, dealing hundreds of kilos um, uh, probably a month uh, uh, across the across the border in, into the United States uh, with lots and lots of violence all the time and, and this kind of thing. So so I think what's happened with the with the Jalisco region is that for many many years it 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 slid under the radar of both the cartels in Mexico, which are probably even a more fearsome force to deal with uh, on, uh, in in the, in the drug world in Mexico, and as well as the Mexican military, the Mexican anti drug uh, operations. Now they've be, kind of come to light, but also the cartels have um, fought over that region now. And my my understanding is that now they are that region is now controlled by the Zetas, uh, um, a very kind of bloodthirsty cartel, and they now pay a kind of a tribute or a, to- a protection tax or something like that to to the Zetas. But for many years, these guys these guys function without anybody um, really caring about them. You know, back then, of course, for many years as well, they were these were the years when cocaine or meth and certainly always marijuana. Were the were the main drugs and heroin was like you just kind of like yeah why bother kind of scuzzy stuff why do we even want to care about it and these guys this guy what this cell is selling a kilo a month in Columbus or or two kilos in Salt Lake or something like that what do we care about that we're talking about minor minor quantities when compared to what we really are interested in. You said that they don't work at the barrel of a gun, but earlier in our conversation you were mentioning how the Colombians had given uh, heroin to Mexicans who were trying to deal it in New York City. Because in your book you talk about how these kind of uh, black tar heroin drug dealing cells from Jalisco, they would avoid New York because of the violent yeah. gangs. So- the Jalisco boys avoid New York because they they are, first of all, their labor force, unlike I think most cartels, um, most cartels in Mexico draw people who are prepared to use guns, who are maybe even interested in using guns, who are who are kind of thug career criminal types. The Jalisco Boy franchise, heroin franchise model, uses as its labor pool kids who might well have they from were they from another town and illegally immigrated into the United States. They might well have been landscapers or or drywall hangers or restaurant workers. They just happen to be in an area where everyone sees the benefits, uh, the financial benefits of selling heroin in the United States. And so these guys, they do not go there. Other Mexican crews will go into Chicago. They will go into New York City uh, because they're maybe not afraid of these street gangs. But these guys, they have looked for the, the path of least resistance. So they go to towns where there is a large white community, a large pill addict community, and um, likely, likely a large Mexican community where they can blend in, but that they were, where there is no street gang or no mafia or no uh, kind of entrenched control, armed entrenched control of the heroin trafficking. So this is why the Jalisco map is, is a map of our mid-major cities um, where nobody 
has been historically really in control. So many of these towns have never even had a heroin market to begin with. Columbus is a is a perfect example. That's one of their major hubs. Uh, Columbus had no heroin uh, before these guys arrived. I mean, almost no heroin, really. It was the, just such an unheard of thing. And uh, people people use pills. They use a lot of other things. They use meth, whatever. But they never hurt, used heroin. And these guys arrive, and now 15 years later, they have an entire heroin court packed. Three, four hundred cases uh, a, a week of uh, a weekly uh, court in uh, in municipal court in, in in Columbus, where where there's like heroin cases now, and so it's um, so these guys have all yes, but these guys have always looked for these mid-major cities, uh, large populations, large suburban rings around those populations, maybe even rural areas outside of that, and salt. So the salt, you know, Salt Lake, Cincinnati, Nashville, Charlotte several cities in the Carolinas, um, you know, Reno, Boise, Portland, Seattle, et cetera, Vegas, Memphis, places like that. Right, places like Portsmouth, Ohio, but not places like Huntington, West Virginia, where they eventually did have uh, their own heroin overdose epidemic. But what distinguishes, I think this is really important, what distinguishes a town like Portsmouth from a town like Huntington, West Virginia, to explain why there wouldn't be, why there would be uh, cells uh, so active yeah. in Portsmouth, but not in Huntington? Well, no, here, all, all of these cells, all of them operate in Columbus. Oh, okay. They're, all right. they're dope. All they, they, these guys don't really leave the bigger city. Okay. There's a couple, a couple good reasons for that. Number one, the farther out you go, the more communities you have to know, and and you get to areas where there are no Mexicans. And if you start driving around, your your dope, driving your dope around these towns, right. you will then say you will then very quickly uh, um, um, create the uh, you know, get attention from the local local police. Plus, what they have found is is better is that the addicts go to them. So in the, I, I got into this story because of, of a spate of overdoses in Huntington, uh, West Virginia, which is a town I did not associate with heroin of any kind, much less uh, uh, Mexican heroin. There are no Mexicans in West Virginia, basically. Um, so what is Mexican heroin doing, killing all these people um, over a sustained period of time, those six, six eight months uh, uh, in 2007? Uh, what are people why is that happening? What, what's happening there? And, and the, the cops there say, look, all our junkies were going to Columbus to buy their dope. So the, the, the model that these guys have used is very effective. It's you set up in a, bit, in a mid-major city like Columbus, like Minneapolis, Indianapolis, or two others. And pretty soon, you be, if you aggressively work that market, always be giving away free samples at the methadone clinic, for example, uh, giving out your number, using every addict you can to uh, give them give them uh, uh, deals like uh, if you find me five customers I'll give you fifty balloons each with a tenth of a gram of heroin uh, these kinds of things they very aggressively work this again they don't use guns but th- they do use customer service and branding and marketing uh, very effectively pretty soon your market will not be within the confines of say Columbus or Minneapolis rather you could draw a radius of maybe 150 miles around that city. And all around that city, you will find uh, people driving in, and uh, maybe every day, maybe every two, three days. And that, that is where their market begins. It's, so it grows in rings, kind of out from the main, the urban, from the, from the city itself, out to the suburbs, out to the rural areas. And the folks in, in Huntington, West Virginia, were driving three hours into Columbus to buy, to buy what they, what they, in their case, they were actually buying from a guy who used to live in Columbus, a white guy, 
and he was buying from the guys from Jalisco and giving it to the guys who would come up from Huntington. And so the, the dope would have these various hands and eventually get back to, to the users in Huntington. And in many cases, was simply too potent for those users. Those users were used to other, other, other heroin. And the, 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 the Jalisco boys pride themselves almost on, on not really cutting their heroin much. Uh, they also compete amongst, amongst each other. With crews will compete against other crews. And because they don't compete with gunfire, sh- gun they compete on price but also on potency. And so they're reluctant to cut, cut their heroin, unlike other dealers across America who cut their heroin frequently, and it ends up being 10 12% on the street. These guys' heroin is usually 60 to 80% on the street. You mention in your work how, um, uh, sorry, uh, you mentioned the rancho culture and mm-hmm. how important it is in the Jalisco area and the state of Nayarit where the black tar heroin is coming from. Yeah. What do we need to know about rancho culture in that area to better understand black tar heroin dealing cells here in the U.S.? Yeah, hey, Great question, man. This is uh, uh, this is, I think, crucial to understanding drug trafficking from Mexico. Um, um, now, it's an, it's a, kind of a complicated answer, but basically, uh, ranchos are small villages, small villages wh- that are usually on the outskirts of of, of uh, civilization. Have been for in, in rancho culture throughout the history of Mexico are these little villages, kind of on the outskirts. They're they're, they're out there pioneering kind of things. They're 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 farming communities. Sometimes it is, as the word implies, a ranch by one family, but then the family multiplies and marries, and it begins to grow, and so the, it becomes a village rather than simply simply a, a ranch. Most, I would say, I don't know if there is even statistics on this, but I would, I would venture to say 80% of all Mexican immigrants to the United States are from ranchos. They come from a, a community that values very hard work, uh, real independence, independence of spirit, uh, but there's also other, fa- and so this has aided enormously in in the development of the United States, in my opinion. It's a very important um, addition to our to many many communities. At the same time, the the rancho is a place where there's lots and lots of of envy, social competition. Uh, everyone's poor. The people who try to get not be poor uh, are the object of either envy or scorn or rumors. Or yeah, there's there's it's a small town, and as they sell say in Mexico small town, big hell. And, and you have a lot of the kind of the, the competition, social competition within families or with, among, between families that is very, very intense. And it's one of the main reasons why we have so many people joining the, the drug trafficking trade. Now, I want to make sure people, your, your listeners understand, 90% uh, or 80, let's say 80% of the rancheros in the United States do not get involved in drug trafficking. But it's the rancho culture of competition, of wanting to be not poor anymore, and then show the people with whom you grew up that you are no longer poor, that, that fires a lot of the, the, the guys who, who do the, uh, join the drug trafficking ranks. And so that's what you find. When I first heard this story about these guys from this one town in, in Mexico selling drugs, selling heroin all over Columbus like pizza, I heard it from a DEA agent. And he said, you know, they're all from one town. I said, I said, I was very interested. I said, what town's that? He said, Tepic, Nayarit. Uh, and I knew he was wrong. Tepic, Nayarit is the capital of the state of Nayarit. Tepic is maybe 325,000 people, 350,000 people. What he was describing by then, I, I had lived in Mexico for many years. I'd written two books about Mexico. 
I, I thought was more likely to come from a little rancho because people would, the, the connections that are deep, the family connections are deep, everyone knows each other, everyone's related by blood or marriage, and there's also this kind of envy and competition that fires people, moves them on, pushes them on to do these kinds of to do this kind of uh, very daring work, it pushes them to emigrate into the United States, and among some people, it pushes them to sell sell drugs. And sure enough, as I began to find out and talk to the people that they'd arrested in Columbus, the, the Mexican traffickers, I began to find out that, yeah, they're all from this small town and a bunch of even smaller villages all around it. And and, and that, that small town ethos of wanting to be uh, rich, and not only wanting to be rich or better off, but go home and show other people that you are no longer poor, that you are better off now. That is a huge motivating. It's, it's what motivates almost every immigrant who comes here who may work as a landscaper or a drywall hanger, but it also is what motivates uh, people who come here uh, uh, to, to sell drugs. They want to come, come back the king. Come back the king. Coming back the king is a powerful, powerful narcotic feeling uh, when you do that, when you've been poor and humiliated and, and relegated. Um, all your life. I think it's a hugely important impulse in why uh, Mexicans in particular uh, traffic drugs into, into the United States. Um, there, was, there was one case, I'll just mention one thing that just blew my mind, but I loved, loved it for, for what it said about that. And that is that um, this, this system, this, uh, this uh, franchising, heroin franchise system, really began to expand because it had lots of laborers, and one of the reason it had, reasons it had lots, lots of laborers was because kids back home saw that this was a system that could take very cheap, very easily made uh, black tar heroin and transform it into stacks of Levi's 501 jeans. It, it was like this revelation to a lot of kids down there that you could work in this system and come home with lots of Levi's 501 jeans. Now, v Levi's 501 jeans, I lived in Mexico beginning in the mid-1990s. I know at that time they were like the gold standard of Mexican rural menswear. You, everybody wanted Levi's 501. So this system, though, is particularly uh, uh, prolific in, trans in, in, in a, you can you can accumulate huge numbers of, of, of pairs of Levi's 501s because all the addicts who come to you are terrific. Also, they're terrific shoplifters. And so uh, as word spreads that among the addicts that you want Levi's 501s, they begin to clean out the pennies or the JC Pennies or the Target or the Sears or whatever store happens to be near them and come and begin offering you pairs of Levi's 501s in exchange for your dope. So you can exchange a hit of dope that maybe cost you a dollar or two to get to make and get into the United States for a $25, $30 pair of Levi's 501s. And these guys would accumulate stacks of jeans. And they would take them home and distribute them like Santa Claus, like they all to all their relatives, to their uncles and their nephews and, and everybody. And once guys back home saw these traffickers coming back after, say, nine months in the United States with brand-new, beautiful, blue Levi's 501s, everybody wanted to go because they had these real chintzy, kind of cheap, uh, 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 humiliating Mexican jeans, which were very low quality, and all these guys were walking around with their, with their Levi's 501s. It was like this revelation to, to kids back home. And that is where they got the labor force to be able to expand all across the, all across the country. Otherwise, they might well have stayed in, in a few regions and, 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 and not expanded uh, as they did.
We are speaking with journalist Sam Quinones. He is author of Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. A reporter for almost 30 years, Sam lived and worked as a freelance writer in Mexico from 1994 to 2004. Sam returned to the U.S. in 2004 to take a job at the L.A. Times, where for 10 years he wrote stories about immigrants, street gangs, drug trafficking, and marijuana growers in Northern California. The San Francisco Chronicle Book Review called Sam the most original writer on Mexico and the border. Columbia Journalism School selected Sam as a 2008 recipient of the Maria Moore's Cabot Prize for a career of excellence in covering Latin America. You can find out more about Sam at samquinones.com. That's Sam, Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S. And my favorite part of your bio, I'm going to save for the end of our interview. Your book, again, uh, the title of your book is Dreamland, the True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. I am certain the pharmaceutical industry, especially the ones dealing opiates, are very unhappy about your book covering illegal, highly addictive, even deadly narcotics. And they're very legal. The industry would argue less addictive uh, drugs because you are under a doctor's and pharmacist's care, unlike with illicit drugs, and are only deadly when used incorrectly. At least that's what the industry would argue. So why write a book where you cover both legal and illegal opiates? How are they similar? How are they not? What determines whether the drug is legal or not, I guess, is my biggest question. Yeah, that's, that's another, another great question. The reason I wrote the, the two stories together is because they seemed to me to be twin tales of drug marketing in the 21st century. Basically, they seemed very similar in that I believe that there was a shift in the underworld, uh, beginning really with the Mexicans, I think, uh, in the 1990s, but, but as they control, began to control a lot more this became kind of the, the norm to move away from gunplay, to move away from violence as a, as a tool of, the, of, the, of drug traffickers. They still may do it some, but it's not clearly not like the Colombians when they came in the 1980s and so on. I, th- I think today drug trafficking operates far more along just modern principles of advertising and, and branding and marketing. And, 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 and I think that's definitely how the heroin uh, epidemic or the heroin uh, use scourge uh, uh, exploded, uh, but p- part of that story was I wanted to tell how is it how is it that we have uh, heroin addicts in, in in West Virginia for for goodness sake I mean I, I had no idea how that had happened when I first got onto this story, and the way it has happened is another story of marketing and branding basically it's it's, it's uh, 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 pain specialists doctors who whose specialty is pain management began the, the, this revolution in, in U.S. medicine, this revolution held that we are a country in pain and we need to very aggressively treat that pain because it is very harmful. And of course, people don't like being in pain. I don't either. And, um, and so the, the idea was, well, how do we treat this? Well, they, had, they believed, uh, certain among them believed, that the way to treat this, it was really the best way, was really through opiate painkillers. And we had a few at that time, uh, Vicodin, Percocet, Lortab. And then in 1996, the game changer was, was OxyContin. OxyContin comes out not because it's a new drug. It contains the same drug, which is oxycodone. Oxycodone and hydrocodone are, are two uh, opiate painkillers that are molecularly basically similar to heroin. They, they cause the same euphoria kill the pain the same way, cause the same euphoria, and they also have the same problems with withdrawal if you get addicted to them. So they're basically like heroin. And, and uh, Oxycontin comes out not because it's a new drug, but because it's a new way of packaging the drug. It's a time release. So you take, instead of taking 
six or eight of these pills a day, you take two. That was really important. It's very effective. And, and uh, the, the pain specialist really caught into this idea. And the, the company that made uh, per, uh, OxyContin, Purdue, uh, hired many of them, or sponsored many of them, I should say, that, that gave them money for their research and this kind of thing, and made, gave them a megaphone. That's the main thing that Purdue gave to these doctors. They might well be calling out in the wilderness had it not been for the money that, that Purdue, particularly as, as sales grew uh, over the years, uh, gave, gave these guys in, in exchange for their, you know, just to help their research, whatever. There was a, it, was a, it was a combination, uh, a combining of, of forces that was very became very very potent money plus prestige and, and perceived independence on the part of the special specialist. Meanwhile, Purdue took several of their messages, and one of the messages that was really the key message to all this, because these guys remember they are marketing to doctors, they're not marketing to you and I. They're marketing to doctors. They want to convince the doctors to sell these to prescribe these drugs to, to their patients. The key message was these drugs are now, we now know these drugs are virtually non-addictive when used for treating pain. And that is a preposterous claim. It's just not supported by, by evidence, although they had graphs that seemed to show that. It, so far, no one has really been able to show that this is true. And uh, it, it, it is for some people. Some people do not get addicted, for sure. Other people do. And tr the trouble is trying to figure out who those people are before you prescribe them those pills. And so what ended up happening was a massive revolution, a kind of a huge surge. They convinced doctors all across the country that this is the case, that the, these pills are virtually non-addictive, or less than 1% of all pain patients get addicted. And um, the doctors buy into that idea and begin prescribing it for all kinds of ailments. Up to this point, these pills have been prescribed for um, terminal cancer patients and this kind of thing. Then it becomes people who get their wisdom teeth out, get pills, uh, 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 all kinds of surgeries. Uh, I had my appendix out. They gave me pills. Now, it's not just a few pills either. These pills are non-addictive, remember? So, so let's prescribe a bunch of them. The, the patient doesn't ever have to come back. So I got 60 Vicodin when I got released from the hospital and uh, not knowing what they were at the time. Um, people, and so you have this huge rising sea level of pills all across the country with doctors prescribing hundreds at a time to people who probably need two or three uh, or, or dozens at a time to people who might probably need two or three. And, and that creates a, an enormous surge in addiction. What we're, we're still dealing with beginning in, in the mid, probably in the mid-1990s, uh, a huge surge of addiction takes place. Um, because people are using it more often, and some of them are using exactly as doctor prescribed and still get addicted. Others are, are using all this, this huge supply of pills that's now sloshing around our country and medicine cabinets everywhere. Kids get into it recreationally, and, and, and what that ends up leading to is, a, is a, an enormous amount of, of addiction. The, the company, meanwhile, is selling it. This, Oxycontin was really interesting because it was the first drug to be sold using branding and marketing and advertising techniques that were normally reserved for over-the-counter medication. This is, remember, uh, an opiate, a very powerful opiate with lots, with lots of dope in, in, in each pill. They begin to market it with hats for seeing Oxycontin and pens and, and trips to Scottsdale for continuing medical education for doctors or Hawaii or Florida. Uh, they had a, uh, a bizarre uh, CD 
that they were giving away to doctors for a while called Swing in the Right Direction with Oxycontin. <laughs> and it had, you know, like swing tunes, Woody Herman, Count Basie, and this kind of thing. They marketed to doctors as if this pill were non-addictive because that was their point. That was their idea. Hey, let's get people thinking this isn't addictive. And doctors, by and large, bought into that idea. And the, re- the result is, yeah, a lot of people did have their pain treated. Um, sometimes effectively, sometimes not so effectively. But the other result, the collateral damage is uh, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people getting addicted to drugs that are, for the first time, this is an important thing, this is the first drug scourge we've had in the post-World War II era that was not a mafia, inspired by the mafia or the drug tra- traffickers or drug gangs in, on the street. This was basically sparked by doctors and pharmaceutical companies uh, buying into the idea that opiate pills, a drugs we've had since the beginning of, of civilization, um, that these opiates are, 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 are somehow um, non-addictive. So a part of the change that you write about in your book, um, part of the change that happens that creates this environment where people all of a sudden have amazing access to opiate narcotic painkillers is this idea that suddenly uh, doctors embrace that the patient is always right, almost like a retail situation with a customer rather than somebody who you're taking care of as a patient. Uh, Another change that happened around that time was, and you were just touching on it, in 1996, the president of the American Pain Society urged doctors to treat pain as a vital sign that is a measurement of one of the body's most basic functions. Those four main vital signs are body temperature, respiratory rate, heartbeat, your pulse, and blood pressure. The APS website states that the group envisions a world where pain prevention and relief are available to all people. Right. How much does today's health care still, to this day, exacerbate opiate addiction? The reason I ask is you just mentioned um, Valium. I really, really like my doctor, and I had diverticulosis. Then the first time I had a bout of it, he uh, said, all right, I'm going to give you a painkiller because you're going to be in a lot of pain. He gave me 56 Vicodin, four, yeah. four Vicodin to take a day for two weeks. I took two and then threw him out, and I told him after that, I never want to get a painkiller from you again. All I want is physical therapy or something else. I cannot stand those painkillers. But that's right. how easy it is. So how much has so has it changed at all? Have they uh, have they tried to reel in that kind of opiate prescription? Uh, yes, certainly. That's what's that's what's happening um, now in many parts of the country. Uh, yes, you you are right that that for a long time, what also ended up happening was the insurance companies stopped funding the kind of treatment you're describing, the more complicated physical therapy. There, there was two competing uh, 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 approaches to pain. Uh, one was um, uh, uh, pills, but the other was multi, a multidisciplinary approach that used maybe some small amounts of, of the, these uh, opiates, but really focused mostly on, on different, uh, different treatments, uh, uh, acupuncture, swimming therapy, physical therapy, occupational, marital Marital counseling could be a lot of different things like this go into the problem of, of, uh, of controlling particularly chronic pain. The, the insurance companies over a period of time stopped funding lots of that, and that is really a, 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 an approach that requires you do all those things instead of uh, a few. You don't want to do all of them, and, and when you begin taking away certain therapies, well, we're going to do this and not that, it doesn't have the same effect. What ends up happening as, as the 90s proceed and into the 2000s is that, that a lot of the folks who practice multidisciplinary pain management 
don't have the, the insurance companies simply stop paying for their services, simply, simply stop reimbursing for their for their services, leaving doctors with really only one tool to a patient a, 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 a patient list uh, of of folks who are used to yes exactly demanding their doctor listen to them now and there's a patient bill of rights and they have one tool and those are that's pills. Um, fast forward to the last few years, and what we're finding is a lot of people now beginning to question the sanity of widespread massive pre, uh, prescribing of pills for every pain ailment. One guy talked said he said you wouldn't you don't we don't prescribe the same same um, uh, drugs for each different cancer. It's when you when it's because you don't understand a, c- a cancer that you maybe prescribe the same thing as you would for another type of cancer. We really still are trying to figure out how to manage pain. It's a very very complicated thing to do. And but th- what we do, what we probably are, are sure of is that there's probably not one treatment for all pain. And and that's the way we've been operating the last twenty twenty years is that just there's one treatment for every kind of pain that, that might exist. And it's kind of a primitive uh, idea, frankly. I think we'll look back on that as kind of a primitive uh, idea. Um, so now we're, we're getting a lot of questioning. The VA, for example, is a pretty interesting uh, organization to, to watch in that regard. They were very eager first adopters of opiate because they, opiates painkillers because they have huge numbers of guys uh, with, with chronic pain, and they're going to be patients of the VA for the rest of their lives. And so they were really interested in figuring out how to deal with chronic chronic pain. They adopted the opiate idea long ago and, and were very aggressive about it and have since come to a, a, a reckoning on that topic, I think, and a re- reassessment. And so now they have started up pilot um, clinics, multidisciplinary pilot clinics, starting one, with one in Minneapolis and spreading across the country, where, again, they go back to uh, the multi- more multidisciplinary approach of swimming, uh, a lot of physical therapy, but again, other counsel, other kinds of counseling, psychiatric, psychological counseling, marital counseling, occupational therapy, this kind of thing, to help people, the 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 the, the, the different patients that they have. And I think you're finding this kind of thing happening um, more and more across the country. The problem is, of course, we now have hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, of opiate addicts, and they too are finding it more difficult to find their pills, and that's why a lot of them are, are, are switching over to, to heroin. You know, Sam, I could have this interview go on for another 45 minutes because I have so many more questions for you. The, <laughs> the way that you write about uh, how Valium becomes the $100 million pill, yeah. how that's kind of the foundation for the changes that happened within the advertising industry in 1997, all the changes that seemed to be happening in the late 90s that turned over to, uh, ch- that changed the way in which we deal with pain killers, and yeah. then that led to heroin addiction. There's so much more in this book that we could talk about, and I'd love to know what you think the impact of NAFTA or the war on drugs or legalizing pot would have on this problem, but unfortunately we're out of time, and I've got one last question for you. Yeah. We've been sp- speaking with journalist Sam Quinones. He is author of Dreamland, The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic, and I cannot suggest this book more strongly. Uh, here's my favorite part of Sam's bio. 
Sam attended University of California, Berkeley, studied economics and American history, and lived in the legendary, now defunct, Barrington Hall Co-op. There, he also produced punk, ba- punk rock concerts for bands such as the Dead Kennedys, the Dills, the Zeros, the Mutants, the Offs, Black Flag, and Flipper. You can find out more about Sam by going to samquinones.com. That's Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S. I saw the Dead Kennedys in 1980 in a strip mall in Davis, California, and I'm very <laughs> curious if you put that show on i did not i only did the dead kennedys once and it was all all my shows were out of barrington hall because i had easy access to it and it was cheap and and the cops didn't ever show up there it was kind of (laughs) off limits to the entire berkeley police police department uh literally so for 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 a good number of years and so i just used barrington but um all my 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 um, work since then has been inspired by by punk rock honestly i'm not kidding about that that um Punk rock was a very healthy thing in many, in, in some regards, primarily because it was all about uh, kind of had this DIY uh, ethos. You do it yourself, and um, I've been a, a DIY reporter basically almost all my career now, and it's uh, it, it's led me to places like Jalisco, Nayarit, and Portsmouth, Ohio, uh, uh, in the interim. Yeah, and I I completely agree. I did security for one punk rock show and uh, ended up choking by accident. Exine Zervanka of it's a huge mistake. I thought she Hard was some... to separate the, 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 the performers from the, from, it, the, from the crowd. The scariest was. one. All right, so one last question for you, Sam. Yeah. It's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write via pills. Heroin had entered the mainstream. The new addicts were football players and cheerleaders. Football was almost a gateway to opiate addiction. Yeah. What is more of a gateway drug, in your opinion, marijuana or football? <laughs> oh man, let me uh, let me say this by being very uh, politically correct and sidestepping the question entirely. <laughs> uh, um, my feeling is marijuana needs to be legalized because car- Mexican cartels uh, use marijuana is the gateway drug for Mexican all Mexican drug traffickers. The way you learn how to be a drug trafficker in Mexico is you begin selling marijuana first. Then you develop capital and connections and confidence by doing it that way. Uh, I believe it needs to be um, uh, uh, legalized, but I do not believe that the current state of marijuana today, where you have 30% THC in joints, that uh, like, like almost like an LSD trip, should ever be legalized. We're talking about drugs that have been completely completely warped and, 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 uh, and mutated uh, because of the uh, because it's illegal, you would never find a drug uh, a marijuana uh, of 30% THC grown naturally anywhere. Um, and so, while I believe that um, marijuana needs to be legalized, needs to be legalized, ought to be legalized, and not just legal, not just decriminalized, but legalized and regulated and controlled like beer and wine. Uh, I also believe that we're we are entering a, a, a phase where we are going to make huge mistakes by legalizing pot- horribly potent. Uh, pot. Um, I guess historically, um, uh, marijuana may have led to more people using other drugs than football has. But lately, uh, as I said in the book, um, it does seem to me, due to the chronic pain that you get from playing football, uh, yes, football is a is is something that that has way too often 
led to opiate addiction and eventually to heroin addiction. And just put words in uh, Sam's mouth, uh, Sam just said football is America's most dangerous gateway drug. Thank you very much, <laughs> Sam. I really appreciate you being on the show. Hey. All right, Chuck. Hey, thanks for the great interview. I, I, really re- I, I really appreciate it, too. Thank you very much, Sam. All right, man. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Chuck spoke with Sam in June of 2015. Hi, Producer Alex. You were listening to This Is Hell. We're back next week with an all-new show. Next up, Donna Merch from April of this year. Despite President Trump blaming the opioid crisis on Mexico and China, the actual culprit behind all the deaths is racism, capitalism, racial capitalism, and white supremacy. Here to set the story straight for us, returning to This Is Hell, historian Donna Merch wrote the Boston Review article, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Donna. It's my pleasure. So glad to be back. Donna is the author of the 2010 book, Living for the City, and she has a new book to be published, I think it's this fall. Is is Asada Taught Me, is that coming out in October? Yeah, it's coming out in the fall. Okay, I'm really looking forward to that book as well. You can follow Donna on Twitter at Merchnik, that's M-U-R-C-H-N-I-K. You start by writing in March 2018, President Donald Trump delivered a 45-minute speech about the crisis of addiction and overdose. Trump blankly recited the many uh, contributors to the current drug epidemic, including doctors, dealers, manufacturers. But then he went on to start blaming China and Mexico for saturating the United States with deadly uh, synthetic opioids, then moving seamlessly to what he considered one of the great internal threats. Quote, my administration is also confronting things called sanctuary cities. Ending sanctuary cities is crucial to stopping the drug addiction crisis. So, Donna, what role do China, Mexico, and sanctuary cities play in the opioid crisis? Almost none. Almost none. In its genesis, Um, there's a really powerful quote that I have from a Stanford professor and psychologist who's also a West Virginia native. And he says something really powerful about the origins of the opioid crisis. He says, West Virginia is emblematic of where this opiate, where this epidemic is at its most destructive. Rural areas that don't have sanctuary cities and indeed generally don't have cities at all. Recent immigrants are rare, yet opioid addiction is rampant. That's because the opioid epidemic was made in America, not in Mexico, China, or any other foreign country. The astonishing increase in providing opioids, which at its apex reached nearly a quarter of a billion prescriptions per year, is what started and still maintains our opioid epidemic. Prescription opioids come from American companies and are prescribed by American doctors and overseen by American regulators. I think he said it better than any of us could. Do you think that this is... Is this all to shift blame away from the United States? Do you think this is driven by uh, President Trump's desire for nationalism, for being patriotic, for blaming all of our problems on somebody else other than ourselves? Well, you know, I think that there are a couple of reasons for it. I think, first of all, in terms of Donald Trump, he has this habit of blaming so many problems on the United States on the southern border, the combination of the southern border border and China. So this is kind of his refrain for many, many things. So I think he has a particularly anti-Mexican, anti-Latino, and racist vision about the world that we live in. But I would say that Trump is actually not unique. You know, my piece is about how the racialization of drug problems is, goes back long, 
and deep into American history and more broadly into the history of the West. So I traced the history of the opium wars in the late 19th century, which are a product of Britain trying to open up Chinese markets by forcing China to import opium, and China refuses, and a war ensues. And by the end of, or I'm sorry, the beginning of World War One, you have an enormous addiction crisis in China. The way this plays itself out in the United States is that instead of censoring Britain, Chinese laborers are targeted for opium prosecution. Similarly, in the 1930s, after the Mexican Revolution, as you have an increase in migration, labor migration, you have a marijuana crisis. And this is deeply racialized. And the same thing is also true of the criminalization of Chinese labor. Much of it is put in sexual terms, that you have essentially these dark populations coming into the United States. They're bringing with them a racial contagion and also a kind of, you know, interracial, interracial lust for white women. So this, this framing of drug policy and drug problems through the lens of racial fantasy is deep, deep, deep in American history. And I think the most important piece is really post-World War II with the, in the aftermath of Richard Nixon's declaration of a war on drugs. In the 1970s and 1980s, you have this enormous criminalization of black and brown populations. 600,000 people are put in prison in the 1990s under the Clinton administration uh, under the guise of the war on drugs. So you have the, the combination of the disproportionate targeting by law enforcement for drug arrests and prosecutions. And then you also have a kind of cultural logic. I think that we're of the generation that remember films like Traffic or Requiem for a Dream that represent white and black drug use in radically different ways. So white people are associated with using drugs for health reasons, to be better workers, you know, to be more productive citizens. And when they essentially become addicts, then it's seen as a kind of tragic fall. Whereas African-Americans and Latinos are often represented as inherently vice-ridden, lustful, and illicit. So my piece is about that. So I'd say that Trump has his own particular intensification of racism, and much of his racism focuses both on Muslims and on um, Latinos in the southern border, as well as China. But he's certainly not unique. He's situated within a long discourse about race and but really about race and sex, like as a way to understand drugs versus a kind of much more, you know, objective, disinterested question of what do we do with uh, substance use, substance use and abuse. We'll get back to uh, what pre- who President Trump is blaming for the opioid crisis and why in a moment. But you mentioned a couple of movies, as you mentioned in your article, uh, 2000's uh, Traffic and Requiem for a Dream. You write that uh, drawing on the cinematic grammar of D.W. Griffith's classic 1915 Klan pian, Birth of a Nation, they reenact the white supremacist ideology that reinforced racial segregation. But that those two movies were made nearly 20 years ago. Do you think that kind of young white girls are coerced into interracial sex by black male uh, pushers storyline? Do you think that would fly today? Have we moved beyond the innocent white girl coerced by guilty black men storyline being acceptable anymore? That's an excellent question. And, you know, here I have to plead age because I feel like I'm not as in touch with the culture. You know, traffic comes out when I'm like I'm in my late 20s and I was really in touch with the culture. So in terms of popular culture, I think that these myths live on. I mean, the kinds of when we ask ourselves these questions about the sexualization of racism. So, 
you know, the focus on the black male body and the fear of the black male body. Remember Darren Wilson, when he killed Michael Brown, he described himself, he described it as that he felt that he was, you know, in danger of being crushed, that he was holding on to a beast. So certainly, I think in the kinds of language that's used by law enforcement and the disproportionate killings, I think that these kinds of rationale remain very deep in the culture. I'm not sure about like popular culture, um, you know, how much it's still present. I think it takes subtler forms and the ways that Black men and women, and especially Latinos, are sexualized in the culture. I mean, more recently, I saw Kill the Messenger, which I was so excited about because it was a feature film about the very important investigative journalist, Gary Webb. And it told a story that is one that unfortunately I think has not been transmitted to subsequent generations about this investigative reporter that traced links between the Contras and cocaine trafficking and crack in Los Angeles. But it was interesting, the way that they told the story of Gary Webb, there were particular moments in the film that, again, drew on these stereotypes. You had the hypersexual Latina who helped him, put him in touch with her boyfriend, who ultimately gave him access to what would become the Dark Alliance story. So even in a film that was about trying to reclaim a history of critical investigative reporting about Contra cocaine, you saw, again, the resurgence of these you know, using sexual narratives as the way to make people legible. So I don't know, because I I kind of, I watch a lot of television, but not film. So I do think there have been some shifts in popular culture. There is a uh, a real influence. I think a whole generation of people of all different backgrounds have studied Black studies and ethnic studies, and there's an increasing self-consciousness about representation. But in terms of how these narratives still live on and help drive state violence and police violence in particular. I think they're very much alive. I cannot watch Kill the Messenger. I interviewed, I had the amazing honor of interviewing Gary Webb once, and I have it sitting there on my DVR, and I've tried it a couple of times, and I just start bawling throughout the whole thing. Thank you for giving me another reason not to watch that movie. I really appreciate that, Donna, because I do not want to watch that movie. Uh, How well do you think blaming China and Mexico and sanctuary cities and immigrants. How well do you think uh, blaming all of those different entities for the U.S. opioid problem, how much do you think that works to rally Trump's base? Do you think he do you think it's a good political strategy for Trump if he's thinking about attaining votes? Unfortunately, I really think it is. Um, I was on a panel last week with an activist for the Center for Popular Democracy And there's a project that they're working on, which is trying to undo the 1994 crime bill. And she was talking about how one of the things that ultimately led them to this kind of activism is that they were noticing that in the 2016 and some of the congressional elections before that, it was only Republicans that were talking about the opioid crisis, not Democrats. And they were using the opioid crisis as a way to talk about white suffering. And they were interested in the kind of racial politics of this why this was happening. So I think that, you know, it's one of the major reasons that I wrote my piece, because I'm currently working on a book on crack and the war on drugs. So I'm very focused on the 80s and 90s. So I was not, you know, before I did this, I'd been reading broadly about the opioid crisis, but I hadn't carefully researched it. But I wrote this piece because I really wanted to interrupt this narrative, especially most of it was written in December. So before some of the big stories broke, 
um, just after the Guggenheim protest. And it was at the height of the frenzy of the building the wall and also the federal shutdown in, in January. So I wanted to write something to interrupt the story because I think that the opioid crisis, the way that it's understood, becomes a stand-in for the larger problem of um, the declining life expectancies among white populations in the U.S., especially working-class white populations. And I wanted to make that story more complicated because, one, white people still have higher life expectancy than black people in the U.S., and that really matters. So in some ways, what we're seeing is a convergence of, you know, lower standards of living and lower life expectancy. And I think there's a problem in the way that this has been talked about as something that's unique to white populations. But when I started researching this, I saw the scale of the crisis and also its origins. In popular media, I'd seen a lot of stories about pill mills um, and about, you know, unscrupulous doctors. But there hadn't been as much coverage about the pharmaceutical company's real culpability and the incredible methods of marketing they used to create essentially a new demographic of opioid users. So when I began to look at that, it also explained to me some of the demographics of why the opioid crisis in its earlier years was so white. So I wanted to write something that would speak to this, but would provide an alternate narrative than simply a narrative of white decline, white suffering and also white resentment. And I think that the opioid crisis in many ways is used to mobilize white resentment. And I think, I was talking to a friend of mine about this, you know, it's one of the ironies with drug crises. I feel that white, white populations that are being affected by the opioid crisis have a lot to learn from how black communities responded to crack, that this actually has the potential to create a moment of solidarity, to think about how people deal with a combination of real structural economic disempowerment, a privatized healthcare system, and these increasingly pharma pharmaceuticalized solutions to human problems with large numbers of people not having health care. I wanted to change the narrative, both to interrupt the racism of blaming China, Mexico, and Central America, but also to try to write about opioids in the context of a larger war on drugs, rather than just contrasting the opioid crisis with the 1980s, because I actually think that they need to be looked at together, not apart. You write, since the late 1990s, yearly rates of overdose deaths from legal white market opioids have consistently exceeded those from heroin. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, between 1999 and 2017, opioid overdoses killed nearly 400,000 people, with 68% of those deaths linked to prescription medications. Moreover, as regulators and drug companies tighten controls on diversion and misuse after 2010, the American Society of Addiction Medicine determined that at least 80% of new heroin users started out misusing prescription painkillers. So why, wasn't op why weren't opioids a crisis earlier? Why did we have to wait 10, 15 years for the opioid crisis to be viewed as a crisis? Why is it only in the last several, last few years, suddenly become a crisis? Well, it's a very, very disturbing story. And anyone who's really interested in this should look at the scholarship of Barry Meyer, Who's a, he's now retired, but he was a New York Times reporter for many years. And he wrote a brilliant book called Painkiller in 2003. So he was already observing this. But it's a story where you have to go back into the 1980s and the Reagan era. And this is one of the paradoxes that I write about in my piece is that, so when we think of the Reagan era, we often think of, or certainly I do, of the second war on drugs, 
this is the real period of the expansion of mass incarceration. It doesn't start in the 1980s, but it expands vastly. This is the period where you have the passage of the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity for powder versus crack cocaine, the two anti-drug abuse acts, federal mandatory minimums, just an immense expansion of punitive state power. But this is also the time of deregulation of the so-called Reagan's Second American Revolution. So in his uh, real commitment to destroying the regulatory state, uh, under Ronald Reagan, you had a relaxing of controls on pharmaceutical companies. You had the simultaneous defunding of the Federal Drug Administration, whose funding had actually, believe it or not, increased under Richard Nixon. But its funds were severely cut. Its powers were limited. And for the first time in American history, pharmaceutical companies were allowed to directly market drugs on television. It's called direct consumer, direct-to-consumer advertising. So the, the deregulatory impulse of the 1980s really, really set the stage for what happens in the 90s. This continues under the Clinton administration, so there's both bipartisan culpability in this, although I think Reagan created the real foundation for it, and then the Clinton administration continued it. So in this process of deregulating pharmaceutical companies, you also have a combination of pain um, uh, pain advocates and then people who are working between like not-for-profits and the drug companies that really rallied in order to have pain identified as the fifth vital sign. So you have this kind of revolution in pain treatment where pain becomes identified as a core part of human health and the the argument was made that this is one of the greatest health crises in the United States, that we have this enormous epidemic of untreated pain. Um, so deregulation, I'd say, is the first piece. And then the second one is that, and this is the, this is the racial capitalist piece, and I'm drawing on the really brilliant work of psychiatrist Helena Hansen and drug policy um, director Julie Netherland as well as the, the drug scholar David Hertzberg, who've really done the foundational research on this. But at the time that these, this deregulation is occurring, and it's not only Purdue Pharma, but they have the, I think they have the most um, impact with OxyContin, and I'll be talking about why, but other pharmaceutical companies are engaged in this as well. They wanted to figure out how to mass market these opioids. So human history has a very long encounter with the opium poppy, and uh, opioids in the 1990s are Schedule II medications. So there was always an awareness of their addictive potential. But in the context of deregulation and the, the identification as pain is the fifth vital sign, pharmaceutical companies began to market opioids to a whole new class of users. So in the 90s, they were largely for malignant pain. So they were, being, they were treating people for end-of-life treatment with l large doses of opioids. And there were two doctors that were involved in this that work with Purdue Pharma, but they made the case using data from cancer patients that the sustained release opioid analgesics were not addictive. Now, of course, these are patients who are chronically ill, many of them in end of life. So measuring addiction in that context is very, very difficult. So they used that it was very limited data. There was a literally a letter to the editor in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it became the basis of a series of studies that were done by pharmaceutical companies. And because of the prestige of the publication, this was used as a precedent to say that we don't have to worry about uh, opioid addiction. 
So Purdue Pharma created this new class of sustained-release opioid analgesics. And they were supposed to be safe because they were timed release. So they allowed for much, much larger intense dosages of opioids to be given to patients with the idea that they could be distributed over 12 to 15 hours. They put a, a, a warning on the label that said, you know, do not take improperly, do not crush. Now, of course, this became almost a blueprint for how people could crush them. So... In the early 2000s, there began to be reports of something called hillbilly heroin. I remember reading about it in the New York Times, and there was a discussion of it, but they focused largely on very poor populations in places like West Virginia, and there wasn't a lot of real investigation into why this was happening. There were some prosecutions in Broward County, which had the least deregulated, uh, least controlled um, sale of opioids, but a lot of the focus was on the pill mills and on this problem about, you know, this uh, prescribers prescribing them, then being filled in pill mills in Florida and then being sent to other parts of the country. But there wasn't a lot of attention to the larger structural question of why this was happening. So I think it always takes time with drug epidemics or drug crises to figure out that they're happening and what their causes are. But the pharmaceutical companies also have enormous amounts of power. Right now, they fund more lobbyists than any other industry in the United States. So I think that it's a, a an issue of regulators being asleep at the wheel, Congress being subject to heavy, heavy lobbying. I would add um, one of the presidential candidates, Cory Booker, has been hugely supported uh, by pharmaceutical companies, as many others. It's absolutely a bipartisan problem. And the third piece, I think, is that this is happening during the war on drugs, and so much of the focus is on the incarceration of people for illicit drug use. So one of the things the pharmaceutical companies did was they purposely targeted white populations. They were concerned that in the process of having these drugs deregulated, that if they, if the face of this new generation of users was black or brown, that this would impede the process of deregulation. So there is evidence in the advertising and the kind of literature that was distributed and the way they represented it, they literally talked about them as a new class of um, consumers, that they purposely chose a population that was not associated with addiction. And that included both rural uh, users and suburban. One of the examples of this, I think, is uh, Rush Limbaugh. You know, there, people talked about opioids as only being this white working class you know, problem of hillbilly heroin, but we did have these not only very high-profile deaths in Hollywood, but also users like Rush Limbaugh. So I think this is a problem across different kinds of white populations. So it's it's amazing that there was this purposeful intent to market to white areas and to white people in order to make it so their drugs were not stigmatized by being used by African-Americans. That is absolutely stunning to me. What do people who deny that they have white privilege, what do they not realize about white privilege when it comes to what happened with the opioid crisis? Yeah, you know, there's a a line that I wanted to read from this piece, and it it really just kind of came to me uh, when I was writing it. And it was about 
the, the how to understand whiteness in this moment. One of the most important lessons to be learned from viewing the opioid crisis and war on drugs through the lens of racial capitalism is that the privileges of whiteness come at great social cost, not only for those excluded from them, but also for those who possess them. And I wanted to, to stress that because first, we don't have a smoking gun. So we don't have a memo that says that this was marketed to white populations, but these critical drug scholars have written about this, you know, through looking at the advertisements and also the geographic distribution of the epidemic, a so-called epidemic or crisis. So, you know, we have strong evidence, although no direct smoking gun. But I think that for me, this is almost a metaphor for the larger issue of whiteness in the Trump era. I grew up in western Pennsylvania, which is uh, in Erie, Pennsylvania, which was one of the counties that supported Trump that was core to his win in the Electoral College. And I think that the this idea of white populations, in some cases, supporting policies that are actually damaging both to them economically and even um, and even health is a major issue. There's a really brilliant book by uh, a psychiatrist and public health scholar, Jonathan Metzl, um, about um, the lower life. He did a careful study of lower life expectancy in two states and essentially looked at the role of pro-gun policies in lowering life expectancy. So I think that there are ways in which whiteness um, is damaging not only to other populations, but even to white people themselves. And that's the world that I grew up in, in a kind of post-industrial city where heavy, dirty industry is leaving and the community is really suffering economically. But they were supporting Reagan adamantly in the 1980s. And that had to do with an anxiety about redistributive benefits, about social welfare and busing, the idea that Black populations are going to get benefits. So people supported policies that were really not in their own interest. And even as like a teenager, a young person, I recognized in some ways they were divesting their children of their future for fear of someone else benefiting. And the opioid crisis to me has that, that element to it. It's a way to get a lens onto this dynamic. You quote historian David Hertzberg, as you were mentioning earlier, author of 2009's Happy Pills in America from Milltown to Prozac, places the opioid crisis in the larger sweep of U.S. history. According to Hertzberg, there is no real difference between prescription medicines and illicit drugs. Both possess physical and psychoactive effects, but the social meaning attributed to them has more to do with race, class, and differential application of state power than pharmacology. The contemporary disparity between between, Ill, between licit and illicit, has its origins in the Jim Crow era when the Supreme Court backed the principle of separate but equal. Are concepts of what are good drugs and what are bad drugs, what are hard drugs and what are soft drugs, racist? Because I've talked to a lot of medical professionals, and I've asked them, how do you feel about the war on drugs? How do you feel about drugs being illegal? And every one of them has always told me all drugs should be legal so they can be regulated in a way that doesn't harm the public. However, then I'll talk to people who are not medical professionals, and they'll often say, I believe in decriminalizing drugs, but not the hard drugs, not heroin or cocaine. So are those concepts of what are hard and soft drugs racist? 
I think that most of it is determined by the race of the user, not the drug. So, I mean, there are exceptions, but it's often, David Hertzberg makes this distinction that the difference between dope and medicine was often the race and the class of the user. So one of the amazing statistics that I cite in my piece, and I found this working on my new book on crack in Los Angeles, is that in Los Angeles and 12 other major metro areas, including Miami and New York, not a single white person was was prosecuted on federal crack charges from 1986 to 1994. So imagine that. This is the height of the war on drugs. And what happened was that prosecutors were shunting white drug users into state-level prosecutions, which were much larger and were, which were, I'm sorry, which were much, they were much shorter terms. And more people were serving time in state and state prisons versus federal. But the idea that in a city like Los Angeles or Miami that were the epicenter of crack, not a single white person, those core eight years of the war on drugs was ever prosecuted on federal drug, on federal crack, crack violations. So I mentioned that to say that it's really the person themselves. So NIDA, uh, the government's own um, agency determined that in this period, two thirds of crack users were white. But crack became typed as a black drug, and it's a complicated story about how it's seen as a black drug, even though there are all these all this evidence of large scale white drug use, but black crack use is more visible and it's concentrated in particular areas. It's reported on as being a black drug. So, you know, the question of who used crack more is really very contested by scholars. But I think that so the division is not really hard versus soft. It's that you know, if you are not white and you use drugs, you are seen through a different lens than white people using drugs. And this distinction is very important because what's happening now is my piece is a historical piece. It's about the genesis of the opioid crisis. But now the nature of the opioid crisis is changing. In New York City, the rate of overdose among black people is higher now than for white residents of New York. So the opioid crisis is shifting and changing and who's using it. Um, so I think that the core and historical racial distinction is that white people who use drugs are often seen as either misguided or as health seekers, and black and brown people who use drugs are seen as inherently flawed, morally fallen, and vice-ridden. So it's a continuation or a manifestation of ways that race functions in other areas. Let me <clears throat> ask you a kind of a general question. Why hasn't the market system made racism unprofitable because as my as any mba student will argue the market can be used to do away with bad things by punishing poor behavior with a lack of business and profits so why hasn't the market worked its magic and ended racism or at least made racism unprofitable and bad for business well i think that we have to revisit the very origins of market the very origins of capitalism in which race and these systems like the transnational slave trade, the seizure of indigenous lands, that at its core, the creation of markets was always built on racial inequality. So while the kind of language of market as forms of equalization is used, I think that that really is uh, contradicted by the history. First of all, like structural disparities in markets are profitable. They allow you to pay people less. They also create, as we saw, for example, in the creation of the new market of 
um, opioid users, the ways that by choosing to market to white populations, these populations were designated as not subject to the same kinds of potential for addiction. So racism became very important to the targeting of this population. So by having images of suburban housewives, of young college students, of people that we think of, um, people that the, the broader general culture thinks of as innocent and well-meaning, it's the racial ideas that differentiated them make, made it possible actually to deregulate and expand a market. So I think that there are many instances where, whether it's in questions of pay equity, that the structural disparities are profitable, but even in consumption patterns, that racial disparities are very important. So I think markets are always inherently racialized, and we have a lot more evidence of the kind of profitability in racialization than in the reverse. Does the war on drugs, does that cause racism? What role does the drug war play in at least reinforcing racism in the United States? I think it's both. I think racism is core to the war on drugs, but in its in its process of criminalizing large numbers of people and setting them apart, it also abets and furthers and generates racism. So it's kind of, it's a feedback loop. But I think the logic of the war on drugs, in my piece, I quote a Nixon official who essentially says that in the 1960s, uh, in the Nixon administration, they saw Black people and the radical left anti-war protesters was the problem, but it was impossible to make it illegal to be Black or illegal to protest the war. And so they targeted the drugs that were associated with these people as a way to both discredit and criminalize them. And he says this very clearly. He says, did we know what we were doing? Absolutely. And I don't, I want to make clear that this is not about a kind of conspiracy. He's giving a political account of the response to the mass protest of the 1960s. And that from the point of view, from John Ehrlichman's point of view, that the war on drugs for them was seen as a political tool. So it's not just racism in the abstract. I also think, you know, if we think about race, there are many things encoded with it. There are biological ideas of racism. There's also a piece that's associated with the role that Black populations have in the history of the United States. So they are commodified, stripped of their citizenship, but they also are an important source of opposition to the status quo. So in the Nixon administration, they saw the war on drugs as a political tool. We might just broaden our toolkit, I think, in how we understand racism. But there's no question that in the contemporary moment, mass, mass incarceration is one of the most important. Um, it's one of the most important ways that racism is made material and given life. What impact do you think would ending the drug war have on institutionalized racism here in the United States? Because I would assume that it would continue, that the war on drugs isn't the only part of institutionalized racism in the United States. So what impact would ending the war on drugs have on that institutionalized racism? I think it would have an enormous impact. It's very, very important. Um, We also need to target racism in other areas of society and the kinds of broad social solutions that are needed. You know, what happens both with mass incarceration, the war on drugs, is that it was taking social problems and then trying to legislate them through punishment. So through mass incarceration, as Kelly Lyle Hernandez has talked about mass elimination, which is taking people off the streets, 
trying to use the system of punishment and incarceration to treat larger problems like economic marginalization, you know, absence of health care, inability to get drug treatment. So I think stopping the war on drugs and the larger processes of punishment, mass incarceration would be a huge first step. But that has to be wed to a broader social vision in which we try to treat both problems of the spirit and material material problems with real social solutions. Can't we just blame the doctors, the people who prescribed you the drugs? You write the company's uh, aggressive sales tactics. That's Purdue. Uh, convince primary care phys- physicians to describe. uh, prescribe opioids much more frequently for a wide range of patients' complaints, including lower back and arthritis. By 2003, primary care physicians made up nearly half of OxyContin's prescribers. Some experts at the time worried that those physicians lacked independent training in chronic pain management and addiction. So is this just all doctors' faults? Can we blame this on individual actions by individuals? No, absolutely not. And there's some wonderful books written about this, as I recommended, Barry Meyer's Painkiller. There's another book that came out from a Guardian journalist called American Overdose, and they trace in detail the dynamic with pharmaceutical companies built a whole entrepreneurial architecture to sell these drugs. And one of the things that they did is they created an army of sales reps that were paid between $15,000 and $240,000 a year in annual bonuses based on the increase in prescriptions sold for Purdue. So another strategy that they deployed, which is deeply disturbing, is they purposely targeted primary care physicians. So they provided them with literature. They took them to seminars and sunny places. There were plush toys and CDs. But they also made important inroads into not-for-profits and into kind of places of medical protocol so that in many ways, I think it was hard for doctors at the time to understand, especially primary care physicians, to understand the potential addictive addiction problems of these medications and their misuse. So one of the things that some of the public health scholars that write about this have shown is that they they strayed away from physicians who specialize in treatment addiction. The problem with primary care physicians is that many of them were not well-informed about addiction. So I think there was a targeting of the PCPs, primary care physicians, and they also used data. One of the things that I didn't know before I wrote this piece is that when you sign HIPAA, it protects your, your name, but all of the other medical data, much of it is still available anonymously. So the pharmaceutical companies, by zip code, could go to see what areas of the country already had the highest levels of opioid use, and then in turn could target those specific prescribers, which is exactly what they did. You see that this is the racial capitalist piece, the combination of a very targeted marketing strategy with an advertising strategy based on racial assumptions. So I really see primary care physicians largely as the victims in this. It's, I think it's much easier to, to tell a story of bad Apple prescribers, but this was a structural problem where the FDA was asleep at the wheel, Purdue was allowed, and other pharmaceutical companies to use these really, I would call them violent market practices. And one of the most disturbing parts of my article is what happens in 2000, from 2001 to 2007. So 
the piece focuses on these ways that we bring together the war on drugs and the opioid crisis. And another way that they're linked is in figures like Rudolph Giuliani. So Rudolph Giuliani is mayor of New York in this period. And in 2000, New York saw under his watch the single largest number of marijuana arrests. So nearly 52,000 people were arrested that year. And throughout his years as mayor, it was the marijuana arrests per year were roughly 40,000, which was a 40-fold increase from previous years. So uh, Rudolph Giuliani was absolutely a drug warrior. He also led a very vicious campaign against methadone and, and argued for drug abs- complete abstinence from hard drugs. Well, two years later, Rudolph Giuliani is hired by Purdue Pharma to defend it from the state-level lawsuits. So you had a U.S. District Attorney, John Brownlee, from Eastern Virginia that was trying to prosecute Purdue. And this goes back to your earlier question, you know, why didn't we know this? One of the interesting things that was happening is that the states knew it because they were suffering enormous costs. So they're seeing, you know, all the public health data about overdoses rising, about the economic cost of the epidemic in terms of emergency room visits and treatment, also the foster care system. In some places, the number of foster children was increasing between 50 and 80 percent. The states were really angry at the pharmaceutical companies. They knew, but there wasn't enough reporting about it in the mainstream press. And as I said, when they did report on it, they only reported on pill mills on doctors. So Purdue hires Rudolph Giuliani, the ultimate drug warrior, and he he, you know, adamantly defends Purdue and has enormous success. He uses not only his skills as a lawyer, but also his political contacts. So between 2001 and 2007, while this suit is going forward, Giuliani works out a deal where Purdue does not have to alter its market market practices. So these, even while they had all this evidence and these lawsuits are going on, it continues in the same method, this zip code level targeting of specific prescribers it continues to do this as the overdoses are rising and rising. So from 1997, I think it's to 2010, 218,000 people die of prescription death, prescription overdose death, death. And I would just add, that does not include people who are using multiple medications. So some of the high-profile deaths, like Heath Ledger, for example, was not included in that statistic. If you were to include people that died who were using both antidepressants and opioids, the numbers would be even larger. So, you know, that cognitive dissonance, I guess that's a generous way to put it, that drug warriors like Giuliani, you know, who presides over a police riot, who's like hammering black and brown populations to stop and frisk and arresting people for marijuana possession, adamantly defended Purdue. He, and the, the outcome of this is that Purdue was not directly named in the lawsuit. Therefore, they were allowed to still have contracts with the federal government. You write that some of the harshest advocates, as you were just saying, for punishment and the criminalization of illicit drug use, have also enthusiastically supported and defended pharmaceutical deregulation and expanded access to opioids. If there is any doubt about Trump's acquiescence to big pharma, despite his campaign promises to lower Medicare drug prices, one need look no further than his appointment of Alex Azar, the second former president of the U.S. division of pharmaceutical giant Eli Lilly and Company, to serve as Secretary of Health and Human Services including Giuliani's history, including Ronald Reagan, making it so OxyContin can exist. How exploitable is this 
paradox for Democrats. How vulnerable are Republican policies of deregulation in the pharmaceutical industry in light of the opioid crisis? To be honest, this is a bipartisan problem. The Clinton administration was very important to deregulation. So, you know, one of the things that we saw in the late 20th century, and it's still a legacy today, is this narrowing of the space of public debate. So the Clinton administration expanded mass incarceration, expanded it from the from the Reagan administration, and they also supported deregulatory policies. Of course, we know about their over the Glass-Steagall Act, which prevented, which was passed in the 1930s, you know, to prevent insurance companies from and banks being conjoined. So it was ways to regulate financialization in the economy that was overturned under a Democrat. Similarly, the vast expansion of mass incarceration took place under a Democrat's watch. So the way that I understand this is really a system that's nurtured by the two-party system, which is one of the reasons that we need radical political alternatives. One of the exciting things for me right now is seeing really the birth of a socialist left that's very widespread and strong. I teach at Rutgers University, and we have a very strong union that's essentially just passed. Um, a very, very radical contract, whether it's the Democratic Socialists of America or this you know, younger generation that's deeply invested in radical alternatives, I think that this is the real solution. The Democrats are deeply implicated also in projects of taking money from pharmaceutical companies, financialization, and in deregulation itself. One last question for you, Donna. We've been speaking with historian Donna Murch. She wrote the Boston Review article that we've been discussing this morning, How Race Made the Opioid Crisis. Donna is Associate Professor of History at Rutgers. This is Donna's second appearance on our show. You can go to our website and just type in Donna Murch, M-U-R-C-H, and you can hear our interview with her from May 2016 when she discussed an essay she had written called The Clinton's War on Drugs, Why Black Lives Didn't Matter. Donna has a new book coming out this fall, Asada Taught Me State Violence, Mass Incarceration, and the Movement for Black Lives, and I'm hoping to have her back on the show then. Donna, you have an open invitation to our show Whenever you want to be on. Our final question for all of our guests on, as you know, is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. While I was reading your article at Boston Review, I kept having this thought in my head, and I just want, and I don't think, I don't even know if this, this question might be completely baseless, so keep that in mind. <laughs> How much is the acceptance of recreational marijuana use how much is that growing in popularity because it is increasingly being perceived as a white drug on some level? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, there's no question, certainly in distribution, that that is the case. You know, the, I've been watching just this question about, you know, you have so many people still in prison and convicted on marijuana offenses, but the, you know, looking at big business moving in to the legal marijuana industry. So certainly on the, on the side of distribution, that's clear. Um, I think that's part of it. I think that's probably part of it. But to be generous, I think that also um, the United States, and, and I think this is true, especially of politically radical and progressive people, but even people who are not, See the effects of mass incarceration, the war on drugs. It's just been an absolute resounding failure. The consumption of drugs has not decreased. In fact, we've seen this explosion 
of the what started out as prescription opioids and now increasingly is devolving into an illicit economy. And the idea that you can you can declare war on drug consumption has just been it's clearly a failed project. So I think marijuana is something that because it also has medicinal applications, you know, the long-term lobbying because it's important for cancer patients, anti-nausea and anti-seizure. So it also has medical application. So I think that there are multiple reasons why that's happening. I think it's possible that it's um, it's that it's seen less as it's less coded as as a black or brown drug. But to be generous, I think there's frustration in the United States about the war on drugs and the idea that we would put so many people in prison for using a drug that most people consider benign and others think is essential as for medical treatment. It's just it's no longer, marijuana is no longer a feared drug by many. Donna, I really appreciate you uh, being back on our show. And like I said, you have an open invitation. Whenever you want to be on our show, please do so. And I want uh, want to have you back on the show to talk about uh, your new book uh, coming out in the fall, as well as your other book that you're working on about crack. I really, really appreciate having you as a guest on our show. I just want to make sure it isn't three years from now that the next is the next time we have you on. So <laughs> thank you so much for being on our show again. It's absolutely my pleasure. All right. Take care, Donna. Thank you. That was an interview with Donna Merch from April of this year. And finally, here's Jeffy. One, two, you know what to do. Hundred and one well butrins. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Hundred and one well butrins. That's how many I have today, and here is why. I get my depression meds from Canada. I order them as I need them. When one batch of ninety pills is three weeks from running out, which is three months worth of pills, I order another batch. Sometimes I order the generics made in India. You get a hundred of those, whereas with the Canadian ones you only get 90. The problem with the Indian ones is that they come in foil blister packs, which is wasteful. But I forget that they come that way. If I remembered, I wouldn't order the Indian generics. I don't like wasteful packaging. Last time I placed my order, some events conspired to delay the delivery of my pills. The Canadian pharmacy called me to say that they no longer accepted payment by Visa card. The problem was, I'd missed the voicemail they'd sent me, and only stumbled upon it two days after they left it. Then it took a few days for me to figure out how to pay them by voided check sent by email, because the only card I have is a Visa card, a Visa debit card. The first person I talked to about it actually gave me the wrong information, and it sounded so wrong to me that I spent a couple days fretting over it in my mentally ill fashion before calling back and straightening it out. What I had attempted to do when I first ordered was give them plenty of time to send the pills before I left for Chicago for a week, because I would need the pills in Chicago. I was going to be performing, and it was essential that I be in as fit a mental state as psychopharmacologically possible. What I had to do two weeks before leaving Chicago 
because of this delay created by their no longer taking payment by visa and my missing the message and then my neurotic stalling over the situation was to only take a pill every other day. The way old people cut their pills in half to save money, except instead of halving the number of pills I took each day, I doubled the number of days per which I took each pill. I say per which. Yes, it's a grammatical figure I've just invented. What happens when I stop taking Wellbutrin is, first, I feel a weird sensation of squishiness when turning my head, as if my head were passing through a squishy volume of space-time, as if space-time were pudding, sandy pudding, made a broadcast static, and the movie I'm in is missing a few frames that have been eaten by this static. It's a disturbing feeling. If I go off Wellbutrin completely, I have severe depression, panics, and meltdowns. I stop eating. I can barely hold it together. So I doubled the number of days per which I took each pill prior to the Chicago trip so that during the Chicago trip, I would have enough to take one every day. I prepped like that for two weeks. But maybe because weeks have seven days and seven is an odd number, or maybe because I unconsciously hoarded more pills than I would need, or maybe I just can't count or didn't bother to count. At any rate, I returned to L.A. from Chicago with one pill left over. And when I got home, there waiting for me were 100 Indian generic Wellbutrins. Added to the one extra of those I'd hoarded for the trip, and you have 101 Wellbutrins. And so... All was well, or so I thought. You see, for some reason, Cruella de Vil wanted to make a coat out of my Wellbutrins. It was an impractical idea, but she was obsessed. Really weird. So my Wellbutrins and I had to run away from her. She chased us in a Rolls Royce that matched her hair, and there were hijinks. There is something pure and good about Wellbutrin, or bupropion hydrochloride, something that keeps me perceiving the world and processing information in a way that prevents me from losing my place in society. I suffered for this place in society. It's not a spectacular place, but it is an advantageous place, considering where some people end up. The story of Cruella de Vil and the 101 Wellbutrins is heartbreaking. How can someone be so greedy and selfish and obsessed as to recklessly seek to take from me what I need to make my life go relatively smoothly? Eh? And yet, it's the age-old story. Some obsessive, self-centered turd of a person just wants what they want and damn the rest. Damn the rest of society. Damn the future. If only she knew what my well-butrins meant to me, she'd see the error of her ways. It's tempting to think that, but that's not how people like to operate. They don't have empathy, these people. People without empathy are a big problem. People like Jack the Ripper and Ayn Rand and Donald Dump. Strange, these empathyless people. Are, they're clearly insane, yet I'm the one taking the meds, desperately clinging to my place in society, while their insanity has somehow secured them their overblown position in the social matrix, a position from which they seek to impose their intrusive, awful will on others at every opportunity. What makes their will and desires more effective than mine? Are they better than my will and desires? They're more ambitious than mine, that's for sure. I had no idea how important asserting my will was going to be back when I was a child. Now that I've learned, it's probably too late to put this knowledge to use. Civilization is making the world unfit for civilization and other living things. But as civilization destroys itself, I will have hope for at least 101 more days. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day! 
Hey, uh, thank you for listening to the show. Sorry about Chuck's dental emergency. Uh, we'll be back next week, barring another emergency of some other sort or the same thing happening. Who knows? Uh, hopefully not. Okay, uh, thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>